Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Spooky Stacks. Uh, boy, it's been a while. <laughs> I blow off the cobwebs, but I feel like I should keep them for atmosphere. But it's me back from the <laughs> dead, Crypt Keeper Jay. I was gonna say I'm back from the dead. I'm Shanna, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a certified Shanna. Ah, as we're... a matter of fact, though, <laughs> I'm actually not because I haven't changed uh, my name anywhere in any official documentation. So I'm a not yet certified. copy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so we're back. Uh, there were technical difficulties. Oh, uh, and how? <laughs> it turns out it's really difficult to get the internet hooked up in September in a college town on an island. I, I guess we could have maybe expected some of it, but uh, boy, it was really tough. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I, I only switched providers because the last guys just didn't want to do it. Well, they showed up to fix it, and then they broke it more, and then they just gave up, so they were done. Uh, <laughs> they gave up. I'm not. It's not a Literally joke. Literally, what happened? Uh, so yeah, there's been switching of ISPs and stuff, but uh, mm -hmm. it does certainly seem like our technical difficulties maybe are going to clear up because uh, already the sound is way better. So that's great. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because I can't control the volume of my voice very good <laughs> when I get uh, into something. It's yeah, hard yeah. for me. Yeah. So we are talking about, you know, it, it sort of worked out. I mean, I, we planned these to be uh, the first, the last week of August. We weren't really planning it to be spooky stacks, but Friday the 13th is one. I'd say it's certified copy in our second part is kind of spooky in its own kind of uncanny way. One I'm looking forward to talking about. I could make an interpretation of it being spooky. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's eerie there is definitely an uncanniness to it there is a shifting of reality that makes it weirdly uncomfortable and i think mm. it's going to be interesting to talk about friday the 13th part two our first film in relationship to that because i think it is a a series that really rewards a meta look at it like there, there is a lot of meta elements to it and especially this one which is such a weird swerve <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh, interestingly, uh, we're recording this on a week that has a Friday the 13th in it. Yeah, this Friday uh, is an October Friday the 13th. Always kind of fun. Uh, I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I did watch uh, Friday 3 through 9 in the time in between <laughs> we were covering this. And then I watched 1 and then I watched 2 again. So I might, I, I mean, I probably will watch three or four by friday again <laughs> so you know but this week 1981's friday the 13th part two directed by steve minor and it's i mean i kind of call it the only serious jason movie well oh the only okay yeah i was gonna say jason. the first one was serious but the first <laughs> one is not jason right this is jason but he's still not quite the jason that we all know I would say that he is arguably not a supernatural figure in this movie. He seems to just be a dude. Mm -hmm. um, a mountain dude who yeah. just had no opinions on the previous massacre at the camp five years ago. Well, he has an opinion in that it is oh, now the culminating force. It's it's what creates the new locus of vengeance. 
it's it's a weird retcon. Like it's such a huge serve. It's the biggest retcon the series ever does up yeah. until nine. Because <laughs> I mean, the whole point of Mama Voorhees' yeah. vengeance is because Jason's dead, but he never died in this one. Yeah, it invalidates the purpose of the vengeance in the first movie, <laughs> which that's weird. Like it it, it, it pulls out the rug, but. Now he's getting revenge for her, who was getting revenge for him, and now he's. And I want Friday. I know it won't be, but I want Friday the Thirteenth Part Three to be the mom comes back to get revenge against somehow. <laughs> uh, we're we're in for Jason for the long run, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the next one he gets the hockey mask. You know, build up yeah. the iconography, but it, it is weird that it's such a huge, huge retcon. Like it, it, a fundamental retcon, it, it totally changes the tenor of the first movie if you accept it as canon. Uh, and I, I feel like these movies are always shifting canon. Each one has to rewrite the ending of the previous one because they never learn. They're never like, mm-hmm. oh, we're not going to make another one. So we kill him off at the end and then they get to the it's like, <laughs> oh, shit, we got to make another one. How do we unkill him off? <laughs> they do well, it every time. <laughs> I, I, but these movies are just like... Uh, they're just like the film or the theatrical version of a campfire story. It doesn't have yeah. to make sense. You could just say, but they say that somehow Jason has returned. Well, it's it's how they even introduce it. They, they do introduce it through the medium of campfire story. Like that's mm-hmm. how they tell the story. That's how they introduce the backstory of Jason, which did not exist in the previous film. He was a legend and now... You know, obviously, my interpretation, as I've talked about before, he's now a tulpa, and he's gathering power. But he's not powerful enough here to be a unstoppable supernatural force. Or is he? <laughs> well, he this makes him like this mm. is what what creates him as uh, the unstoppable supernatural force because the third one is where he becomes pretty truly supernatural. I mean, he. He comes back from the end of this one, obviously. Although the end of this one is really curious. The end of this one is hard to say what actually happens. Yeah, because um, so the end of the last one, uh, she's in the boat. She's escaped from Mama Voorhees. And then ah, little boy Jason attacks her. And then she's <laughs> right. in the hospital. But the the little boy Jason thing, it's pretty easy to read that as a dream sequence. Oh, very. Yeah. Because it's it's a detached from the actual ending where, you know, she beheads Mama Voorhees and she goes out on the boat to just like get away from all of the shit that's been going down. And it's like, okay, I just need to get away and get out on this boat. And then she falls asleep and has a dream. And the guy's are like, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. And it's only Alice. It's Alice. Alice. Uh, I didn't learn a single name of a single character in this movie. Oh, I know all the character names. I'm just trying to remember. Uh, Alice from the first one. Yeah. Uh, Alice was the the final girl in number one. And yep. it's it's really only her assertion. Like, well, then he's still out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had thought that the Jason that we see in this and the Jason, the little boy Jason that attacked her. Uh, was somehow the same entity. Also a common reading and a possible one. I think the retcon of number nine is how this works because uh, 
Number nine is dumb. Number nine, I consider non-canon. I, I consider one through eight to be the, the Friday the 13th series. The other ones are Elseworlds. Uh, number nine, it turns out Jason is an alien worm from outer space. Oh, yeah, that, right. <laughs> that crawls up people's butts and controls their minds. Uh, <laughs> so, you know... He, the it crawled up the corpse butt of the kid in the lake i don't know why but crystal lake never removes its dead they just stay there forever that's a thing throughout the series <laughs> well yeah because they otherwise how are you gonna say and they say that jason is still there and the cop would just be like no he's not well yeah and i mean i i guess it sort of necessarily has to be that jason is still down there because if they had reclaimed the body, how would he still potentially be out there in the woods? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I, him being back is sort of a really key retcon because it does really change a lot of things about the first movie in that it makes a lot of things about Mama Voorhees, Pamela Voorhees, very questionable in terms of her parenting and, <laughs> you know, the reason for her rampage. I mean... It, he wasn't dead. She just like he went off into the woods and everybody just lost track of him. You, you figure <laughs> like maybe a couple camp counselors m made up a story that I guess he must have drowned or she has assumed he must have drowned and it, it's folklore that he drowned. Yeah, because he's been alive for, I guess, probably around 20 years now. She's just yeah. been doesn't, <laughs> doesn't well, care presumably she does not know i mean I that, that seems to be the point except he's still hanging around the lake and she's still hanging around the lake and they just haven't run into each other yeah yeah because i mean she's lurking around in the woods just like he is but i guess he's lurking watching her kill and then he learns it by watching her and oh. <laughs> i guess that's what we're to take from it <laughs> what if know. he's not even jason voorhees and he's just a guy who kills people uh i i feel like there's a couple points where he's maybe oh well he has to be jason voorhees because the altar yeah at, at the end he he is clearly worshiping her and he does respond to amy Steele cosplaying as her which is so funny mm -hmm. uh <laughs> <laughs> it so, was uh, it was terrible in the 2009 version but i love it here yes it's way better here they they hit it perfect well part of it is that amy Steele is just a really good actress she performs it really well like even that part you were talking about when both of us were re-watching it last night since you know we were gonna do this episode seven weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> uh we were both re-watching it and uh you were saying how the the scene in the diner where she's sort of deciding jason's backstory and freaking herself out about it but like it's such a good performance it's mm -hmm. kind of comical when you think about it. it's like she's like a toddler who's making up a story and spooking herself but it it's also true <laughs> yeah <laughs> but does it become true because she told the story Exactly, exactly. She's feeding the tulpa. The, that's that's my argument for sure. Because <laughs> I do kind of feel like in this in this movie, retcons aside, he's not a worm. He's a guy. Yes, but 100%. in that other he's one, he's just a dude. Yeah, but in that other one, the story needs him to be a worm. Uh, and in one yeah. of them, I guess he's a robot. Uh, he is. <laughs> 
He's mm. brought back by AI in the distant future on a spaceship after right. being unfrozen. Um, <laughs> that one's bad. Jason X is real bad. <laughs> so uh, one of the things about this one is that it's very much a studio picture. This is probably the best lit one. It's really beautifully lit and shot for just you know, a movie in the woods of Jersey. <laughs> this could have been so dark and ugly and hard to see. And I've seen a lot of horror movies oh, like, yeah. in this kind of setting that are. All of the copycats of this. But this well, one, yeah. you know, it, it was bankrolled by Paramount. So okay. uh, it's it's beautifully lit. You know, it's got studio lighting, which you don't get for most of these woodsy slashers. It's just these gorgeously shot images of the woods at night for the whole movie it, it really of the entire series it's the one that feels the most evocative of actual summer camp to me i never really or, did summer camp but i did feels... a little bit of summer camp i did a lot of summer camping <laughs> woods camping right right and i just feel like it, it gets it so much more and it's also the one that's actually east coast of the last one the first two are shot in Jersey. Number three moves to California and it's obviously a fake lake and it just, everything looks so hollow and empty. <laughs> Which, it's a certified copy of two. Uh, I, I do want to refer to that movie a few times here, kind of in preparation because I do feel there's a lot of interesting meta elements about this movie and how much it kind of recognizes itself. Okay, I, I hadn't thought to connect this one with certified copy, but I'm interested to hear what you got to say. I certainly had it in my mind when I was writing the notes. I, I haven't gone through them again since then, but it's uh, it's it's definitely going to come up. But it, it, it definitely with this series, they get lower budget and fakier very quickly. This one looks really good. Mm -hmm. So we've got our opening shots with the little boy playing in the gutter uh ala it almost but i, think I was thinking is... of uh i was thinking of the clown yeah i think this is before the book even came out though oh before uh, the... yeah i i believe it's before the book I'm, I'm pretty sure that's one of his 80s novels and this is 81 so i think it's a couple years later but uh, you know he's playing in the rain gutter and it's kind of an interesting symbology thing where you have the little kid, which is what we know Jason as, and he steps aside and this man steps in and this is our new Jason. Yeah, who uh, goes into the city once. It's the only time he's left Crystal Lake. He doesn't do it again until eight <laughs> when he takes Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> and they say if you take a boat from the lake to manhattan jason Voorhees might be on the ship oh no <laughs> so he walks slowly and purposefully it's interesting that he's managed to track down alice yeah in I... another town <laughs> <laughs> with Barely any mastery of the English language, no internet, uh, probably can't face. read a map. Like, he, he looks like Sloth from the Goonies uh -huh. in this one. So, yeah, it's <laughs> somehow he, he just, he's there. 
it, it definitely speaks of a different Jason than we know any of the subsequent ones to be, other than that maybe this would be the one supernatural element that he has some sort of homing capability almost. This Alice sense is tingling. Yeah, he just knows where to get the victim that he has to get for his vengeance. It's like, this is the primary vengeance that's currently powering him. Uh-huh. Uh, again, for the, the Tulpa theory. So I thought that uh, I thought that this whole movie was going to be her like coming to terms with everything that happened to her in Crystal Lake. And of course, that's going to involve a confrontation with Jason and, you know, kind of like what Jamie Lee Curtis has to do every single time. Yeah, but uh, but no, 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 Uh, (laughs) she's she's just back for this one. Uh, Weird thing. I I feel like this is the only one that really does this where you go back and get the last one. It's more common in other series, but Friday the 13th doesn't really ever do this again. Hmm. Okay. Because Amy Steele does not come back after this one. Right. I think she, I think they were going to, but she was just like, no. (laughs) Uh, Really? (laughs) I don't want to. (laughs) Which is the right choice. I think it's a stupid thing to do. It just kind of negates the success of the final, the end of the previous movie. I kind of, I don't know. I I don't, I don't dig that. Hmm. It's it's I, I like I get it here because we're introducing a new character and it's a new source of vengeance. Yeah, it works this time. It's just it would be a hat on a hat doing it every time. Yeah, yeah. This time it's uh because you think you're setting up your your protagonist for the second movie. I nope, that's a shocker. It, it it worked. It got me. Right, and so like one of the things in terms of the supernatural nature of Jason, this is like it's when he's 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 approaching the place and it's super rainy wet like waterlogged the Mm. the the house that uh alice lives in just looks completely water damaged it's like this spooky mansion at the end of a rainy street (laughs) i wonder you know him being a lake monster uh of a sort he he is this lake based demon he he is attached to crystal lake is the weather the 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 rain the pervasive wetness what allows him to travel here because the only other time he travels is by boat oh good point oh but wait though he's afraid of water so that can't yeah that's not that's no No, i know that's the i hate that so much that makes me so it's the fundamental thing that pisses me off about that garbage movie (laughs) <laughs> I, I like the idea of him being able to travel fr- away yeah. from the lake in the rain if it's yeah. raining hard enough. That's that's cool. That weather kind of allows him because he he is so tied to the elements. He's this outdoor creature. He is a tulpa who lives in the lake. He's got this wetness about him. He he's so soggy in the later films when he becomes <laughs> just this water zombie. How did they decide he was going to be afraid of water? What the Because he drowned. They, they didn't think past the first film. It's so stupid. <laughs> so there's one room in this creepy, rundown, waterlogged mansion that Alice is in. And she's having a dream about the end of the previous film, so we get to see it again. <laughs> yeah, previously on Friday the 13th. It's interesting because it's totally padding. This movie's only 87 minutes, and we got like a solid 10 minutes of flashbacks near the start. <laughs> Five uh, yeah. to ten. Yeah, they do basically the entire 
first movie from the Mama Voorhees reveal till the end. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it's padding in one sense, but it's also reinforcing the continuity. It's like, no, no, all of this stuff happened, and now this is the change that is made, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's weird that, like, for something that's so heavily changing what happened or cha- fundamentally changing what happened, it still wants to show you all of it. And it's like, no, all of this is still correct. This is just, like, a shift. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we get, like, three full scenes from the end of <laughs> Friday the 13th, and she wakes up screaming, and her mom calls. Uh, and, you know, she's fine. She gets in the shower. Yeah. But then she oh, gets a yeah. spooky call. <laughs> oh, I love I love the camera bit, though, where it's, like, following her into the bathroom and mm. into the shower and, like, opening the curtain. Because we've already established there's a scary guy just outside this house. Right. So it's it's our first playing with the POV of the camera where the audience and the camera are kind of made to be the same. The audience and is aligned with the killer. The audience is here to see the deaths just as much as the killer's here to perform them. <laughs> That's true. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, these were body count movies. The way like I don't know if you watched the trailers on the disc, but they literally just they count how many deaths they are in their show. <laughs> That's the trailer. And so what they did in the first one, they count up to 13, showing people dying. And then this one, they continue the count. It's the body count continues. And then they do 14, 15, 16. It's oh, crazy. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she gets the spooky phone call and she's looking around. She's spooked out. And then there's a cat scare. <laughs> cat jumps in. <laughs> Classic cat scare. Uh, cats. I was, my cat does that. Cats do that. I mean, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easy to throw in. But then, you know, it's it's a fake out scare. And then she opens the fridge to get cat food. And oh my God, it's Mrs. Voorhees' head. <laughs> so he brought it with him. But uh, yeah, fridge. that's wild. He brought and... it with him, stuck it in her fridge to surprise her with. I mean, this is a lot more planning than Jason will ever do ever again. Yeah, this is like a Michael Myers thing. <laughs> this is very Michael Myersy. That's true. And then he takes the head back with him to go back to the lake. <laughs> He's got to put it back in his shrine. He takes Atlas as well. Oh, yeah. She's one of the bodies in the shack at the end. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, but they know she's murdered. I guess they find all the blood. Because that's part of the, the story. Like they, it's It's part of the legend. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Nobody. They they're just assuming. Well, I mean, I guess that's also what happened with Jason. I, <laughs> I guess they, they had to have just been assuming he drowned because he, it. You know, the first movie presupposes that Jason drowned. What this one does is, what if he didn't? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he stabs her in the temple with the ice pick, and then. Amusingly, like the kettles whistling, and he's like, "Oh, I better take that off the burner." <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to leave that. <laughs> I I like that. That's like the last thing we see before credits. The the kettles whistling, and like I get the kettle whistling, just that we see him reach and take it off the burner and set it aside, and then the credits come up. Well, he's got him. She put. She can't let the tea go to waste. <laughs> 
just it's it's so funny to me i i have no idea why he would do that <laughs> i never even thought about that but yeah that makes no sense <laughs> <laughs> or like I, even filmically i don't understand because just why not the screaming kettle whistle into the kaboom of the credits because in this one you know first one the the credit uh comes up and smashes through glass this one it explodes it explodes <laughs> friday the fire. 13th explosion whoa <laughs> so we get our first two new teens arriving and of course crazy ralph is automatically summoned from wherever he is <laughs> i wonder what kind of house crazy ralph lives in I love crazy. Well, he has a wife. Oh, what? It's, it's I, I rewatched the first one on like uh, Saturday night and uh, the cop when he like that weird cop, the motorcycle cop who comes to talk to them. He, I think it's him who mentions like, yeah, crazy Ralph. Yeah, he gets out, he gets a drink and his wife is calling us. We have to <laughs> haul him back home. Like, crazy ralph is married <laughs> crazy ralph isn't just a weirdo in a shack that's wild crazy ralph is married and i'm single <laughs> man i gotta start warning people about murderers I, I, like crazy ralph it feels like a ceremonial position especially when you have <laughs> another like a fake crazy ralph in number three and <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll talk about that later. <laughs> that one's a really weird element of this movie that really speaks to the whole uh, Tulpa element. And it almost feels like it's a cabin in the woods type thing. It's like, well, Crazy Ralph got killed off. We have to replace him with the new guy. <laughs> do, you, do you take the mantle of the talents of the local Crazy Ralph? Oh, I think I'll be doomed if I do that. You're perfect. Well, because... I, I kind of digressing in part three there is this fake crazy ralph who comes up and it's it's a 3d movie so he's gotten an eyeball from the most recent killing and he holds <laughs> it up to camera oh god and he's like and and he he says how he's been told that he has to warn them and that he allowed me to take this piece but i, I wasn't allowed to keep the rest and he has this whole thing about all these this information he was given to pass on and like Jason didn't give him that information. Jason is not someone who's instructing him on that kind of thing. So did the ghost of Crazy Ralph do it? <laughs> I'm just imagining this little like him going on his little ghostly motorcycle or a uh, bicycle rather. <laughs> oh man. Barely the, the still like barely able to balance. The long shots of him just uh wheeling away on that bicycle twice. Really great. You're doomed, I tell you. Doomed. Doomed. I love Crazy Ralph. They shouldn't... Like, spoilers, obviously, they kill him off in this movie, but they, they should have uh, just kept him as a, as, a, as a piece of local color. Like, I feel like they regretted it. for the it. third one. Yeah, they should have just had him back miraculously. <laughs> I mean, his death is already an absurd miracle to begin with when we get there. Somehow, Crazy Ralph has returned. <laughs> Somehow, Crazy Ralph persisted. Uh, <laughs> so, Jeff and Sandra are our first two new teens. And they, they get to a phone booth and they phone Teddy, who is the Shelly of the group. We haven't met Shelly yet in the series, but he is the ultimate prankster kid. 
<laughs> oh <laughs> yeah he's the one in number three yeah <laughs> but he's he's the prank guy he has uh sent a tow truck to prank tow their their truck away but they've been distracted because crazy ralph has shown up <laughs> well the girl like when you look at her, she isn't distracted. She's in the phone booth looking in the direction of the tow truck, but she's not paying oh, yeah. attention. Yeah, she she just is, is blankly staring. And then, you know, Crazy Ralph shows up and, oh, you're all doomed. They didn't listen to me last time. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, Crazy they, Ralph. I love Crazy Ralph. Now, they, they watch him bike off and run after the truck up to Teddy's house. So he's a local. He's a townie. Yep, so he should know all the shit about he Jason does. being real. Well, yeah, right. He he is the one who knows. Oh, right, because uh, he's the one who does the, the, the fake out. Yeah, he's the one who pretends to be Jason when they do the campfire story. And also, he survives. He gets out of this, which is crazy for the annoying prankster character. Those guys never get out of it alive. Oh, yeah, that's right, because he ends up just going into the town uh, to the bar and just misses all the action. Yeah, he just goes and gets drunk and stays in town because he lives there. He doesn't yeah. need to go back to the fucking cabin. He can yeah. just sleep at home. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> He's going to, like, go into work the next day and be like, oh, shit, I'm still going to get paid? Well, I, I feel like he won't because of all the buzz in the town, because this killing spree continues for two more weeks. The next oh. two movies take place over the next two weeks. Oh, so it's the same <laughs> killing spree. Yeah, this one is just nonstop. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> yeah. So one of the other things I really like about this specific one in terms of the whole series, it really feels like the most comprehensive summer camp experience with them, it's it's a thing that recurs a few times in the movie. With uh, it, they pick up Teddy and they're driving to the camp, and they're just telling bad uncle jokes. <laughs> There's a lot of that. There's it, it comes up a few times. Just them telling just dirty jokes. Like these are like this specific the the rabbit one, the rabbit and the bear. I remember my <laughs> uncle telling me this joke camping as a kid. <laughs> so yeah, just it really like gets into that main line like oh yeah dirty jokes is such a kid camping experience like that's where you hear them yeah <laughs> so they come to the road blocked by this drag tree someone's like dragged a tree into the middle of a road and we get our first bit of what i think is supposed to be actual jason pov camera stalking specifically of sandra i think this one is him or meant to be but it's not always clear. Because this is where they kind of trespass into his territory because they're the ones that find the Camp Crystal Lake sign. And Ted's like, oh shit, Camp Blood. Uh, we better get out of here. I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. But he's a local and locals fucking know. Oh yeah. They, <laughs> right. And locals don't want to talk about it. That That's yeah. their whole thing. The locals kind of protect him. I, I feel yeah. like it's this sort of thing. And there's like, look, there's no such thing as Jason. So just uh, don't go mess with that area and everything will be fine. But they go <laughs> mess with that area. Yeah. The the girls immediately like, oh, man, I really want to go mess with that area. Yeah. Well, it, it is specifically Sandra. She's just like, oh, shit. Murder palace. Let's go check that shit out. 
<laughs> I want to go to murder camp. <laughs> so we cut to Paul, our <laughs> the guy running the camp counselor training camp. That's the funniest shit to me. <laughs> camp counselor training camp. That's like satire. The camp <laughs> counselor counseling camp. And he's the camp counselor, the counselor of the counselors. He counsels the counselors. Like if you're doing a Zucker Abram Zucker slasher movie, you know, <laughs> it's like of a spoof movie type. <laughs> camp counselor training camp is the is the hook. That's what you do because that's so absurd. <laughs> and, and like all these people who want to go trespass on the dangerous stuff, they're the camp counselors. They're the ones who are supposed to be. Although I guess camp counselors not doing their job is kind of a recurring thing in this series, isn't it? It's just kind of a thing. Summer camp counselor, you know, Paul has his big speech about how, oh, you know, it's not the cushy job you think it is. It's not all goofing off and just hanging with kids all summer. And like, uh, a lot of it is, though. <laughs> you, you can spend a lot of time getting stoned and fucking and drinking and goofing off and... uh the kids are mostly going to be taking care of themselves at a summer camp. True. You, you have your lifeguard. You have your couple people who need to be monitoring, but a lot of the rest of the time, there's there's a lot of downtime. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, the first night, we don't see them do any camp counseling at all. Well, they aren't doing any yet. I guess we're not seeing the training element i don't even understand what the training element of it would be what are they learning well he introduces all these guys as people who have been camp counselors before what do they need this course for i truly don't understand It, it it is clearly just they needed an excuse for people to be there for them to be teens and not kids yet you know the kids haven't shown up uh because the camp hasn't fully reopened. Yeah. Yeah, just the idea of, I, I guess, I mean, the previous one was they were there a week early to get everything set up. I don't know why they don't just do that again. And it's sort of that, but it's also, no, it's a training camp for camp counselors. <laughs> Silly. So in terms of the camera stuff, one of the things is that the way the camera works, sometimes it's obviously the 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 other people the the pov can be anyone's uh-huh. uh we we can kind of jump into anyone's pov at any time but most of the time it's representing jason and a lot of the time it's also representing the audience so in this one it's a little more frank and it, it makes jason more human but also more sexual he like the way the camera lingers on the girls when it's in pov it's ogling and sometimes like the first time we see this and, and the point i was thinking there's um terry oh uh, uh, the girl um, with the dog the sexy one the sexy one and yeah. you know she's introduced with the camera like pov zooming into her butt and it mm-hmm. does seem like wait is jason ogling this chick but it turns out to be scott the smoldering guy but he's also kind of a shelly he's got a slingshot I call him I call him Dennis the Sex Menace. He is Dennisy uh from Always Sunny. Yeah. And, and he does slingshot. seem like a sex pest. Yeah. <laughs> and of course the slingshot got me thinking of Dennis the Menace. Dennis the Menace. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Never so used Ginny, a slingshot to kill Jason though. 
sadly, it never shows up again. It should have been employed. Maybe Jason could have gotten a hold of it and killed him with it. I would love to see Jason with the slingshot, like like the Bart Simpson POV shot. Because <laughs> to be fair, Scott's kill is a little weak. It's one of the weaker ones in the movie. That that would have been a good punch up for it. Yeah. <laughs> so Ginny is showing up late. Amy Steele, our final girl, the most obvious final girl there could possibly be. She's like she shows him like, well, this is our girl. The car <laughs> that she's in is like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's in a this this volkswagen that just is just falling apart as it moves she passes crazy ralph on the way notably mm-hmm. but she's sort of an atypical final girl in a few ways because she she's not pure at all she's not really like it, she's not in in terms of the not having sex it's only because she's on her period it's specifically mentioned at one point it's alluded to i missed that detail oh it's it's pretty <laughs> subtle there there's like a thing written on the mirror after the 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 opening speech that paul gives but uh it she's also in a relationship with the guy running the camp just like alice was in the first one which is weird there's a lot of things that they sort of are doing the same thing but they do them a little bit differently mm-hmm. but like her relationship with it she just seems so above him and done with him and it's like yeah i mean whatever uh she's like she doesn't have any of the angst that uh alice had about any of it she's like yeah whatever man she knows how to use her psychology on him uh, we we learn that she is majoring in child psychology which is incredibly important mm-hmm. i love like her intro she's like the guy's like, well, you were late. And she's like, I said I was sorry. And it's like, you actually did not say you were sorry. <laughs> Pretty sure you didn't. Like, well, anyway, why don't you fix my car for me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, stop your meeting that you're right smack in the middle of and make out with me. Although she doesn't seem to be super into him as well. She kind oh, of no, maybe yeah. seems to be past him. <laughs> yeah. No. Um... Yeah. I, I like her though. She oh, I love her. She is maybe my favorite in the whole series. <laughs> she she's fun. She's she's a bit of a troublemaker. I think she is, which is why she's interesting as a final girl. She's sort of a shit disturber. She, you know, she just uh, isn't willing to put up with this shit. <laughs> she's got a little bit more smarts than everyone else. So we get Paul's speech. I don't want to scare anyone. But I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. <laughs> <laughs> so our new backstory, the body was never recovered. And the longstanding rumors have been that he's still out there, which uh, is not something we heard about in the first one. No, there is no rumors. The tulpa. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it has been five years since the previous one is what they say so yeah. it's now like 1984 we're we're into the future oh we would be <laughs> wouldn't we yeah yeah so yeah he does the whole thing and like rumors are he's still out there and then teddy of course jumps out with a mask and a spear mm-hmm. and like no nah, no nah, he's he's not really out there it's there's no jason everybody just chill out <laughs> rule... <laughs> don't go to camp crystal lake <laughs> rule number one of camp counseling establish jason Rule two, D 
debunk Jason. Rule three, yeah. tell people don't go to the lake anyway. Well, yeah, it's like you feed the tulpa and then it's like, but don't, don't look into this compelling mystery. <laughs> don't dare. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that's kind of a joy about these movies is just all of the just people hanging out at camp. That's a lot of it. You just, ah, it's it's what makes these movies so rewatchable to me. It's why they're such popcorn movies. They're so great in summer and fall. It's just you're hanging out at summer camp and then you get a bunch of silly kills. Yeah. And it's I, the whole thing. I don't even like despise most of these characters. They're all kind of fun. They're kind amusing. Of. They're they're a little bit better in terms of the the skill of acting than what you will get in some of the subsequent ones, especially the third one. It's a pretty hilarious drop off. Quite oh, honestly. Really? Watching two and three back to back is really funny. <laughs> Cause it's so much fake here. Like it's, it's so obvious that they've moved to a fake lake that's in a bag. And it's just, <laughs> Oh man, it's weird. And it's so 3d. Like they're, they're pushing everything at the camera. Oh, I, I hate that. <laughs> it actually becomes hilarious to me like there's, there's just a scene where someone's dangling a yo-yo in front of the camera <laughs> a few times like what are we doing this is a friday the 13th movie <laughs> so yeah the 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 hangouts against scott flirting with terry of course uh Ginny beats paul at chess again showing that she's better than him uh-huh. um, and then yeah she's better than him at everything isn't she yeah I mean, she managed to survive. I don't yeah. know what happens to Paul at the end, quite honestly. Yeah, we That's don't a real find out. <laughs> I don't think it's ever mentioned. I don't think it ever is revealed. Because I think in the next one, they give the number of deaths and Paul is not included in the total. Or at least there is one less than... Like, Paul is not included in the number if it's all the other ones. Right. right? Yeah. Weird. Yeah, I don't know. So uh, Muffin, Terry's dog, finds Jason, and there's like a hard cut to hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, actually, I don't think that's quite yet. First, just Muffin sees Jason lurking in the bushes and is like barking, but I was like, shut up, chill out. What's your problem, dog? Yeah. Right, because he's lurking outside the windows first. Because he, he's just sort of lurking around a while. Uh, you get Teddy playing all his little handheld video games. There's that bit earlier where the the girl who has a crush on the wheelchair guy has, a, <laughs> has them. And she's like, I, I, Teddy says it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Her borrowing his video games. Um, she was going to challenge or He thought she was going to challenge him to an arm wrestle. Right, Mark's doing all his arm wrestling because, you know, he's in a wheelchair, so he's uh, constantly trying to be physical, and he's very, uh, it's a big chip on his shoulder. Uh You know, he's recently in the wheelchair from a motorcycle accident, we'll learn later, and, you know, he has been told, like, no, you are going to be in a wheelchair for for the rest of your life, and he will not accept that. He's like, well, he's wrong. (laughs) actually yes he is wrong (laughs) it turns out he's wrong (laughs) he will die in that wheelchair you will literally die in that wheelchair (laughs) 
but yeah, Sandra finally just keeps begging her her boy Jeff to like, come on, I want to go to Camp Blood and see all the like crazy stuff. So there's uh, Ginny goes to her cabin, and there's another Jason fakeout because Paul is like ding dong ditching them. Oh right, yeah. Cause because he like he rings the bell and then he like loops around and gets inside. It's like he's doing a Jason thing, but it's to like surprise her romantic romantically and they, they make out a bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. And of course someone is ominously watching outside. But of course. It's crazy Ralph! <laughs> oh my god, oh okay, are we at this part? <laughs> we are at this part. Okay. The first great kill. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've watched this thing in slow motion. I'm trying to figure out how to make it make sense because I thought nothing of it until you mentioned why it was yeah. wrong, and then I was like, now I can't unsee it. Because Crazy Ralph has his back up against a really big tree, like a huge one, like one you'd have to that you could put your arms entirely around. Yeah, you'd have to reach all the way around. Like yeah. you, you could hide behind this tree; it's big enough for that. Yeah, someone is in fact hidden behind this tree. Or maybe. Well. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how the mechanics of this work exactly. So, so he's there, he's watching them make out. He's he's just being pervy Ralph for a bit. And uh, <laughs> both uh, two, two hands lower from above him with a, a length of barbed wire. <laughs> so and he's garroted with barbed wire against the tree. How though? So the, there's How? a few ways that this can work. Uh, one is that the tree actually stops right at the top of the frame, and there is no tree above just it, just above the camera, and he just loops yeah. it above. Right, because it had to have gone all the way over the tree, or he like shinnied up and then like he, yeah, shinnied down, put put the the whole chain around with both arms and then shinny down and just kept it just above frame yeah <laughs> and, and like with the way the tree is positioned you could see jason from the house you would think you would think they don't well they're making uh, out yeah, okay you know, but they're distracted some... they're distracted camp counselors this is why they have to die. Oh, yeah, of course. Everyone knows although, distracted camp counselors can't see Jason and death. Although I feel like the retcon by making it not about uh, his death and by neglect and making about the death of his mother, it stops being about distracted camp counselors and just becomes about territory. I... Has anyone ever asked Jason? <laughs> uh, he, he, uh, I mean, he does can't kill anybody who's on the lake. In number four, there's like a family who's uh, camping there in a cabin across from some teens who are not camp counselors or anything. It's just other campers. So he fully just goes into camp killing anyone by that point. Okay. They really only stick with the camp counselor thing for this one. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think they're camp counselors in the second one. And also there's a biker gang. Oh. <laughs> biker gang. Oh, man. Does he punch one of gang. their heads off? <laughs> no, he only does that in number eight. I can't remember. I I can't remember. There, 
most of them get killed in a barn. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. They didn't have a lot of sets for number three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And it's all sets. They don't have locations there. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, the crazy Ralph Kelly, it's just so funny. It, it absolutely cracks me up every time. The, the more I watch it, I, I have to assume he's just shinnying down to get him. And that like <laughs> that in my mind always makes that so funny to watch. Or, or like <laughs> just above the frame, he like threw the wire or the chain or whatever, like around the tree, making sure to do it. And then, like, catches it with his other hand, and then it still doesn't work, though. <laughs> no, I can't figure it out. There's no way it works, but it's it's so funny. Like, I, it's it's a really amusing image. And like, why why did they do it that way? <laughs> when they just have Jason sneak up and grab him? But pretty funny. But this is the point where we learn that Ginny is on her period. Okay, because she uh, she says to Paul, "There's something I should tell you." Uh, and I think on the mirror she has written "Beware of bears." Because oh, this is after he's given he the speech says... about women on their periods. Beware of the bears because of you know be, be very careful and, yeah. in your menstrual cycle. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, I did not pick that up at all. It's a subtle bit. <laughs> <laughs> so we go to this POV shot in the forest, just panting, grunting. Uh, but which seems to be Jason. Jason's kind of more vocal in this one, too. He does make noise. He makes, like, vocalizations, like, no words, but he's just, like, making sounds a lot, Mm. which he doesn't do so much of in later ones. Until nine, he's making a lot of fucking noise (laughs) when he's running through the woods before he gets blowed up. And then explodes. (laughs) Hilarious. Uh, So yeah, they're doing the counselors are doing a run in the forest, and and Jason is looming on them. But this is the one I think you were mentioning where Ginny seems to look directly at the camera but does not see anything, even though it's this panting POV view. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh... Yeah. Again, it's it's playing with the audience. It's like, oh, well, is is she looking at us? <laughs> yeah, see, I, I like that because I think, was it the first one where all the kills were in first person? Yes, pretty much. Like, anytime it cut to POV, I think it was distinctly Jason every time. This one, it's a lot more liberal. Way. Yeah, it could be anyone or no one. Right. So this is the part where Muffin runs into Jason in the forest. Right, right. And we get the smash cut to them grilling hot dogs, <laughs> which, I mean, I assume that Jason ate Muffin. So <laughs> I, did I. Because we see Muffin's corpse later that's well, just ripped to bits. That's a different dog because we see Muffin no, no. alive later. No, no. No, no? That's, that ending is questionable. I don't think that part is reality. Oh, I'll have to get to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have some theories about that because it doesn't work. We see Muffin's corpse. We see Muffin just destroyed on the ground when Jeff and Sandra find him. Yeah. But then I was like, well, maybe that's a different <laughs> Luffy. Well, that's a unique dog. You're not going to find another one of those in the wild. Yeah. It's kind of would be a surprise to find. And the ending is very questionable because that's where reality sort of doesn't 
quite come together. It's the fake out dream ending with Jason jumping out of something. It's just, it doesn't have the, the continuity between the actual ending and is less clear than it is in one where we have like, she chops off the head and gets in the boat and goes overnight. Right <laughs> Here it's like a few minutes later. Yeah. Weird. We'll, we'll get to that. So yeah, the, the smash cut to hot dogs on the grill. I do think Jason eats muffin, uh, but it's, it's kind of Michael Myers territory. Michael Myers is always the one eating dogs. He's very Michael Myersy in this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they do establish like he must be surviving off of small animals and berries and shit. For... Yeah. It's <laughs> hard to imagine that he would actually be healthy enough to be as strong as he is. yeah (laughs) like he's he's like a hulking beast man he's really powerful yeah yeah like he must eat better than we do i mean i i figure he's getting a lot of exercise yeah uh, and maybe he's doing a lot of raiding of camps oh that could be there's probably lots of stuff that he can get into much more easily than a bear so we have terry looking for muffin and she is very clearly POV stalked by Jason. And it's another one where she looks directly at the camera nearby when the, and like, it's a POV stalking and she goes muffin, <laughs> <laughs> but she's not got there yet. Cause uh, it's a while before any, any more of them get it. It kind of all happens in one night. Mm-hmm. So Jeff and Sandra go to explore camp blood. You know, he's, he, he she's finally convinced him. <laughs> this and is the only thing she has spoken about in the whole film. It's her primary interest. It is her character feature. She wants to know about this place. And they are clearly stalked by Jason as well. We get a bunch of POV stalking and they find Muffin. Like they find, they find a dog. Dead fucking corpse. dog. It's, it is very chewed up and it's pretty clearly a Muffin style dog. Yeah, that's that breed. And there's like, it looks, it's like, I think it's Muffin, but it's really been mutilated and like the guts torn out and stuff. Uh, So they, you know, they they decide not to say anything about it. um, And police show up. Oh, yeah, the cop. (laughs) Yeah, the the cop brings brings them back and lectures Paul. uh, And he's also lecturing Paul just for even starting this camp because of camp crystal lake and they're like he's a local and they're like you shouldn't have started a camp here it's a really bad idea you don't understand and he's like <laughs> no this is the perfect place to start a camp and i'm gonna do it anyway <laughs> these legends i mean i think you're all very silly and the the comes like okay man I, mean, I i just think you should really just get them to not go to the former camp it's really dangerous like you're not gonna punish them for that because it, people shouldn't be going there. I, I'm just saying it could cause problems. I'm I, I don't know anything about it, but it could cause problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like we know about local legends or anything, but just I'm not saying it could, but it could. But it, yeah, right. And and Paul, of course, does his whole I'm like, oh yeah, well, Ginny, uh, uh, dock them dessert for the next two days. And like, I don't think this is funny, man. <laughs> just, <laughs> there there could be problems here. Also, in between there, there's a bit where it cuts back to all of them still hanging out on the beach. It's a really fun, stupid, bad improv dialogue that's just like, obviously, 
teens doing improv dialogue, <laughs> making jokes and hanging out. It's someone does the what's brown and sits on a piano, and one of them goes, "Your face." <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. So good. Oh, it cracks me up. <laughs> Nothing about that joke works. <laughs> Ah, so uh, the cop drives away and he sees jason uh with the sack on his head and everything our, our first clear view of jason this is the shack right he's crossing the road oh, okay oh and, oh right uh, he follows him to the shack yeah because the, the cop's just on the road leaving the camp and he sees him cross the road and chases him into the forest he pulls over and takes off so i assume jason does something with this car and hides it can Jason drive? We know Michael Myers can drive. Michael Myers can certainly drive. I've never seen Jason drive a car. This is the only one where it could potentially be a thing because he's really Michael Myers in this mm, one. Yeah. But yeah, they they do show up. They they do get to his scary shack. Yeah. But we don't get to see much of it because he gets a hammer in the back of the head real fast. <laughs> the claw part, like, stuck in Ooh, his yeah. head. Ooh. Ooh. A very good gore in this one. Uh, I'd say pretty solid. Uh, on par with the first one, which was pretty groundbreaking. Mm. So this is the halfway point of the movie, and the final night begins, just like Halloween. We're only at the halfway point? Holy shit, okay. <laughs> yep, this is the exact halfway point, and this is where night starts. And it's this is, like, night falls, it's exactly like Halloween. You get halfway through, it is Halloween night, and everything happens here. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Paul, Ginny, Teddy, and all of the other unnamed characters go out partying and all of the characters we've met and have names stay at camp because they're grounded or they want to get laid. <laughs> <laughs> grounded and or wanting to get laid. Um, right. It's yeah. In, in the case of the grounded people, it is both. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so Terry goes to look for Muffin again, but then she doesn't find Muffin. And so she decides to go skinny dipping. Very slasher movie kind of choice. You know, maybe Muffin went skinny dipping. Well, it's funny, we get another bit where it seems to be Jason stalking POV, but again, it's Scott being a perv again. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, takes her shirt. Yeah, yeah. it seems like he's he's gonna, you know, wait for her on shore and attack her, but it's just Scott. Yeah. Uh, Jeff and Sandra obviously go upstairs to have sex. Of course. And there's Mark, the the wheelchair guy and Vicky, the girl who has a crush on him and they're playing Teddy's video games. He's like, what are we playing for? Position. <laughs> so she wants Scott, to bang this guy so bad. She really wants to bang him so bad. And he's, it takes him an incredibly long time for, to wake up to it. Like he is just, dumb it's not getting through it, it takes forever <laughs> so we come back to scott taking terry's shirt and he runs off into the woods and he gets caught in a jason trap <laughs> <laughs> bring an upside down snare like a like a roadrunner trap and i assume this is set by jason scott assumes it's paul he's <laughs> goddamn paul and his wilderness bullshit <laughs> 
yeah, I think it's Jason. Oh, of course it's Jason. Yeah. Oh, you say Terry. Yeah, Terry's like, okay, well, I'll go get a knife and cut you down. Yeah, but she's not going to be too quick about no. it. She kind of teases him for a moment, which is cute. Yeah. And there's a bit when she's running to get help, she throws her towel directly into the camera. Yeah, right. And again, it seems like it's Jason. It's the POV. The camera goes right into it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I guess not this time. Or, or maybe she did throw the towel onto Jason's head. Who knows? But this is a really interesting part of the movie to me because simultaneously, both of them, it like cross cuts between Terry and Scott in their two different locations. Both of them simultaneously get weirded out like they're being watched. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> which is kind of cool because it, we're it's it's two sets suspense for the audience, obviously, because we don't know which one of them is going to be attacked. But it's interesting that it hits both of them simultaneously within the movie. Uh -huh. Because, again, for my Tulpa theory, it is the suggestion of which place is he going to generate? Because he doesn't seem to have a definite physical force in terms of his ability to teleport all over the place in later ones. I can't remember where, but there is one point where he's chasing somebody and it does feel like he teleported a little bit towards the end. There might be a little bit in this one. But, like, like you could explain it. Yeah. So... Scott is the one who gets slashed. He's upside down and Jason gets him with the machete. Like you said earlier, would have been better with the slingshot. Really would have been. <laughs> just right in the forehead, just Goliath <laughs> style. Or just like he has like a, a dart in it or just a, a knife, like a kitchen knife. Anything. That would, that would be fun. Yeah. Or, oh, oh, like a, like a broken glass bottle. There you go. Yeah, that'll work. So, Terry comes back. She's just got a Swiss army knife that she's going to cut him down with. And she turns the body and like, oh, he's dead. <laughs> and we get camera POV. She screams like she turns to run and screams at the camera coming at her. So she's dead, I guess. I think so. It's interesting that she that her death is not seen. We do see her body show up later. But she's the most objectified character. She has this really fraught relationship with the camera. She's the one that's always being lurked around and ogled by it. And she's frequently looking at it. She's throwing the towel at it. Uh, she's sort of the one that is always being weirded out by being looked at. In the other scene, she's being looked at by us while Scott is being looked at by Jason. They're both weirded out by it. So we're creeping her out. And she has this extremely troubling relationship with the camera, and then she doesn't get a kill. The camera just comes screaming at her, and she dies. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. All right. <laughs> so we cut to the bar, or the diner, or whatever the hell it is, <laughs> where Ginny, Paul, and Teddy are debating the nature of Jason. Some ecclesiastical dialogue. <laughs> now, if Jason was real, he'd be in the woods for like 20 years wouldn't that be fucked up, you guys? And Ginny's basically, what if, though, guys? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I guess that would suck, but, like, whatever. <laughs> it's like, but that would be really fucked up, guys, don't you get it? <laughs> She's writing the backstory. <laughs> She's giving the new revenge motive. It's this transitional, vengeful power. He's in the woods right now, crying out for vengeance for his dead mother. 
Yeah. And it's like, we don't see Jason. Guys. It's like, I don't know about that. But she's convinced. She is like. She's convinced. She has this extremely powerful belief. That's what powers Jason. Belief. Mm -hmm. So somehow we cut back to the house. And for some reason, Jeff and Sandra are going upstairs to have sex again. What else are they going to do? They're grounded. (laughs) I they all why are they still up there? Why are they going up a second time? I I feel like it happens twice. Maybe they have to go to the bathroom. I guess. I don't know. And Mark and Vic Mark and Vicky have the talk about his injury. We we get the background. There's the motorcycle. I'm definitely gonna walk again. I'm not gonna stay in this chair my whole life. Uh Vicky smokes some weed. They find some weed. They're like, oh, oh shit. Oh. Mark doesn't because he's in training. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, they're you know setting up reasons to die in one of these movies, although I don't feel that it necessarily matters to Jason. Again, it's the audience seeing them do these things as the camera, rather than Jason as the avenging force seeing them do these things. Right, yeah. <laughs> Morality of the 80s conservative audience rather than uh, that of Jason as just this supernatural force of death. Of course. But yeah, they, they make plans to have sex. <laughs> and and she, she goes to get ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was good sex. Would you like to have more sex? I would like to have more sex. What does what your schedule look like? Well, th- this is, sorry, Vicky. And, oh, oh uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Vicky and they finally uh, the, he finally figures out yeah. that the only thing on her mind is him. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, oh, I get it." And he's like, "I'm gonna go to my cabin and I'll get changed and stuff." And we see Jason, or I don't know if we see Jason, but we definitely see POV. We see the lurking outside Vicky's cabin and watching her get changed. Mm-hmm. Where here, obviously, it isn't Steve and it isn't anyone else who's here because they're all busy. So. This is Jason as a more sexual figure. He's standing outside and watching her get changed. Yep. <laughs> I don't think he ever does that kind of thing again. Which is interesting. Again, just it's it's a different form of Jason. Yeah. Hmm. So we we get the sh- the camera just like looming up on her butt, bent over in panties as she's looking into the car. Oh yeah, and then. When it cuts out of POV, there's obviously no one behind her. It is, again, the audience following her. It's the audience's lust being the killer. (laughs) (laughs) So again, obviously, I I had all this stuff in my mind because I was thinking very meta about the way the camera moves in this movie in relation to certified copy being a movie that is very much involved in itself and sort of looking at its own being as a movie. Uh, so it's something I was thinking about. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> so we get uh, Mark on his, on, on the deck and it's a big storm all of a sudden rain, thunder and lightning. Jason can move in those. We establish at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, he can generate from anywhere because I don't... This is another one like the Crazy Ralph one that I can't understand how it happens exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, Mark is out on the deck and, you know, it's it's uh, raining and pouring. And Vicky, is that you? Vicky? 
You know, the, the classic routine. Yeah, he gets macheted in the front. He gets macheted in the front. And we have this weird bit. It's more POV trickery because we have this long zoom tracking behind him. Like someone sneaking up on him. Then we keep switching back to in front of him where he's looking. And Vicky, Vicky, where are you? Vicky? <laughs> <laughs> and we see, obviously, no one sneaking up behind yeah. him. So we, we see the sneaking up, we see the sneaking up, and then suddenly a machete comes and hits him in the face. <laughs> so, like, he would have had to have seen Jason. <laughs> you would have to think. Like, where was he looking? I don't know. But yeah, Jason chops him because i have no idea where he came from no uh i assume teleported via rain yep <laughs> uh but yes this is my favorite kill in the movie <laughs> he gets hit in the face with the machete and the wheelchair goes down two flights of stairs <laughs> with him in it and the the machete in his face perfect and then max the alien from back at me comes up from below the frame and goes whoa <laughs> yeah it feels like that should happen so it cuts to Jeff and Sandra orgasming. <laughs> oh, I love this one. <laughs> and we see Jason downstairs. He takes the fake out spear from earlier, the Jason fake out spear that, that um, uh, what's his the name? Ted Hughes turns Ted. out it's yeah. really sharp. It's a real spear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he goes, very slowly upstairs and of course spears directly through them it's a good shish kebab directly through both characters yeah we see like we just see under the bed the spear like the bloody spear comes down from the bottom of the bed and touches the floor, hits the floor. <laughs> and it's just yeah. like fuck yes so back at the camp or at the the diner Ginny and paul head back to camp in the notably unreliable volkswagen mm-hmm. And, and they underline it. They're like sitting and like, is this thing fixed? And like, well, I fixed it. And like, is it fixed though? I'm like, eh, well, 50-50. Are any of us truly <laughs> fixed? Who knows? So Vicky comes back to the main house looking for Mark. They're going to get yeah. it on. And this is a weird bit. Jason is in bed with Sandra's corpse. Oh, yeah. He's like under the sheets with her, with like the sack on and everything and just waiting. And then like he throws up the sheets and like lunges. He slashes Vicky's leg. And this is where we just start seeing all the bodies everywhere. She backs up and she, and Jeff is hanging on. He's it's weird. He he's been hung in a noose of bed sheet on the wall. Yeah, that's kind of weird because that's. He was already dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to display that you killed him, I would. Leaving the spear of the two bodies is a good way to do it. It is just very strange. But he wanted to get in bed with the other right. corpse for whatever reason. Right. Maybe a sexual reason. Maybe. In this particular one, it's the only one where he kind of seems to be of that nature. But it's our first really full view where we see Jason with the sack on his head with the one hole for one yeah. eye. Yeah. And he's got like a plaid shirt and overalls. And he's just. A big dude. And one of the things that's really weird, we get his POV while he walks over and stabs Vicky. But I think a very interesting point about it is he isn't looking at Vicky. He's looking at the Mm -hmm. knife. That's where the focus is. 
So that's that's kind of interesting to me that he is like the person that he's killing is totally uh an aside. It doesn't matter to him. The the point is the killing. Didn't wasn't there a Michael Myers scene in like the first Halloween that was kind of like that too, where he's more looking at the, the opening sequence? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The opening sequence is very much that. Okay. Uh the the whole POV where he's in the the clown mask and yeah. stuff. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, it could very well be that. But, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, it, it totally isn't. He isn't even looking at Vicky. He just is watching his knife go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, everybody's dead. There's nobody left alive at the camp. So Jeannie and Paul get back and they can start running into bodies. <laughs> and so this, I, I, I talked about this way back when we probably like the week before our, our previous episode, uh, how... It was Blade in the Dark. I was shocked when you see the killer laboriously hauling bodies somewhere. Jason actually does it. We see it. I was stunned rewatching it. We see Jason hauling Vicky's body down the oh, stairs. Oh, yeah. As Ginny and Paul are coming home. Right. I was like, oh, shit. He, we see Jason moving a body. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so Ginny and Paul come in. They look around and they find, uh, obviously, a very bloody bed with the axe in it yeah uh <laughs> real bloody but jason has moved all of the corpses they've all been taken yep. away somewhere so in terms of you know i, I mentioned earlier and uh, the the way this this movie sort of frames the camera as the audience and the it sort of reinforces a conservatism element i i feel like the slasher in the 80s as a movie genre was sort of accidentally conservative but yeah, I think uh, I I can agree with that. I feel like Paul in particular is sort of a caricature, permissive liberal character. Okay, because you know his his stuff with starting the camp and how he was like not willing to uh, deal with the issue with the cop earlier. Oh, plum. Oh, she. <laughs> there must be a trespassing kitty in the yard. She is losing her shit. Maybe maybe she's being stalked by a camera or Jason. Uh oh, Jason Cat. Oh my god. Uh I'd watch that. <laughs> I'd watch that. Uh but you know, he he's always this really permissive guy and he's looking at he finds the weed and he's like, oh, these kids smoke better dope than I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh this is the one moment that I think is actually genuinely frightening in this movie. And is one movie, one moment in the movie that actually gives me chills and is like, you know, it's, it's weird because these movies, they're a popcorn entertainment. They don't really try to deliver scares. They deliver. Yeah. Chills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the first one I found scary just because the mama Voorhees character was scary, but yeah. Yeah. Her doing the kid voice is spooky. Like legitimately. Oh. But the part where Jason is just hidden in a corner of the room and Ginny realizes it is so spooky. Oh, yeah, right. There's someone in the fucking room. The the first just, Paul, there's someone in this room. And then he starts to move. Like, we see him sort of rise out of the shadows and like, there's someone in this fucking room. Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Incredible. Like, it's a, it's a genuinely chilling moment. Jason like comes after Paul with spear and they, they grapple, which obviously he's not superhumanly strong because Paul can fight him. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, 
I, I don't think anyone, <laughs> this isn't the Jason that's punching people's heads off. Right. But I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure whether or not he kills Paul here. Yeah, I don't know. Because Paul comes back, but I don't know if Paul comes back. <laughs> uh, so Ginny runs away. She grabs a knife and she runs. Yeah. Uh, Jason, you know, pitchforks through the kitchen door. Uh, she tries to go into the pantry, but Ralph's dead in there. <laughs> He's moved the body there. So Ginny escapes out of a window. She tries to get in the Volkswagen. Obviously, it won't Obviously, start. We've established yeah. that it won't start. <laughs> I appreciate that we do establish that the car won't start, because usually in horror movies, yeah. everybody just forgets how to do it. Yeah, they, they can't. They just don't know how to they, they keep flooding the engine. Yeah. They don't know how to key it. Yeah. Uh, Jason attacks the soft top. It's a soft top yeah. roof, and he's like going at it with a pitchfork. Uh, and she doors him. You know, he he jumps down. She hits him with the door, and she runs for it again. She hides in a bush. This is a, just these sequences in terms of just this beautifully lit nighttime shots of forests. All of these sequences where she's just running in the forest at night. It's like this looks so it's amazing. It's really good. Uh, just some random eighties New Jersey forest never looked better. But yeah, I, I love her hiding in a bush and she jumps out and kicks Jason in the nuts. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's queen final girl shit. That's incredible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> Another thing I feel like wouldn't fly when we're dealing with a uh, robot, demon, worm, alien no. Jason. No, no chance. Like Jason from, I'd say, four onwards would not go down to getting kicked in the nuts. <laughs> But, it, you know, he obviously, not only he does not have his supernatural awareness yet, he doesn't have supernatural stamina. Right. Uh, and I mean, in terms of the Tulpa argument, obviously, it's just he's still weak. He's He just doesn't have the folk energy yet. But this rampage, because it continues for two more movies, this one massive multiple week rampage, that's what makes him an emotion. Oh, yeah. The, the, legend, the, the legend gets stronger. And that's what makes it. That's yeah, exactly. what powers them. Totally. So Ginny gets to the shack and she hides under a bed. Or I, I, No, she doesn't go to the shack first. She goes to her I cabin, think I think. she goes to her cabin. Because she's hiding under the bed and it's where she sees a rat and she pees. Oh, right. Yeah. I thought that was... I get... Yeah. All right. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a solid scare moment. I, I yeah. get it. But it's it's a weird bit where Jason fakes her out. He pretends to close the oh, door yeah. and, and leave. Yeah. Again, more planning than you're used to from Jason. You feel like he would just brute force, like rip the bed. Yeah, you, yeah. Certainly in the later ones. But he's he's standing up on a chair to wait and attack her. But it, he's too heavy and it breaks under <laughs> yeah, his Yeah, she like kicks it out from <laughs> under him. No, it just oh, it breaks. just breaks. He's too heavy for it. <laughs> it just crumbles and he's like oh shit <laughs> uh so she finds the chainsaw that we saw her uh capable to use oh, earlier, right. and she like goes after him with it which is mm -hmm. cool and he backs off he's like oh shit a chainsaw i can't survive that i could be hurt <laughs> by things still he's running away he's very troubled by it and she hits him with a breakaway chair and runs away <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like that's the thing she hits him with a chair and he is 
down. He is knocked out. In like five or not five. Five is a different guy. Five is the fake Jason. (laughs) Five is Roy the movie. In six, if he were hit with the chair, he'd just keep coming. Of course. There's no way that would even knock him down. So she runs through the forest. She finds Jason's shack where we've got just a big pile of corpses. Alice is there. Vicky's there. The cop's there. And of course, uh, I, I like that he has both the head and her sweater. Yeah, the, the, the it's the, when I saw the altar. The altar to mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I lost it when I saw the sweater. I was like, okay, the head. Whose head is this? Is the mom? I know that because of the sweater. Oh man! So Ginny has this shock of inspiration she puts the sweater on it's all bloody <laughs> crusty it's gross yeah actually it's you'd think that the sweater would be like wouldn't be all worn and stuff and torn up well i mean it's the sweater she was murdered yeah. in, or the like she was beheaded in that sweater on the beach i assume he got it off her there yeah but <laughs> it wouldn't have holes in it oh well oh well yeah. i mean it's it's been five years of living in the woods yes who knows what he's oh, doing? Oh, yeah, maybe he is wearing it. This is the sexual sexual Jason. Uh, oh, oh, oh. So there's the, the weird bit where she puts on the sweater and she's like looking at the corpse and kind of trying to style her hair like it. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't even do, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that made me laugh. Uh and he's like pick pickaxing at the door yeah he's trying to hear his johnny right so she he comes in and she does this thing where she pretends to be mrs Voorhees. she pretends to be his mom says come to mommy kneel down and she's like raising the machete to get him but you know she she lifts she leans and he sees the head behind her yeah (laughs) he's like hey wait a minute and he like grabs the pickaxe to start fighting again like parries the thrust yeah. <laughs> uh she gets slashed in the leg oh yeah please he, she, he he does end up getting macheted though doesn't he uh eventually because paul suddenly yeah. shows oh right up yeah heroically and grapples with jason but the whole place is just starting to fall to pieces around them as they <laughs> yeah <fight>. why because <laughs> i don't think it's reality anymore i think we've broken from reality I'm not sure what happens at the end here. Okay. <laughs> because it's not totally clear. She she gets the machete deep into his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. Like she she chums up on him, she gets him, and they pull off the sack. And he, you know, he's he's supposedly dead. He's on the floor. Yeah. They take the sack off and he's hideous. And they go, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and they leave. Uh Paul, I guess, sort of helps carry her there because she's got a big slash in her leg and he takes her to the cabin. She's laying down on the bed in front of this huge big picture window. Not not dangerous at all. Couldn't couldn't be a problem. No, not not remotely. <laughs> <laughs> and they hear a noise at the door, and it's Muffin, which is impossible because Muffin is dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess the other thing is if it was Muffin, the dog the dog's not from this camp. The dog's visiting this camp. It wouldn't know what door to go to. Right. And these aren't the, these people like Muffin doesn't know yeah. these people. Yeah. 
No, it doesn't make sense. No, uh, they, so this is a fantasy. This is a fake out. This is like a dream. Oh fuck! <laughs> I just can't figure where it begins. Yeah, because the thing is, Paul is gone when like Muffin comes in. It's the fake and like, uh oh, what? And they open the door and like, oh, it's just Muffin. And then Jason comes crashing through the window. Yeah, it's a Jason freeze frame. <laughs> just he's fully vertical coming through the window like he's superman screaming <laughs> at the time too the only time i've heard jason go ah. with his like mask off he looks like just this he looks like sloth from yeah <laughs> he looks like he's gonna start shouting about bobble yeah it's it's crazy and it just cuts to black and then we see the paramedics putting jenny in an ambulance she's like where's paul yeah so no, nobody says anything. i don't no one knows, because uh, Paul, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. So I don't know what happens at the no, end. No, the here. ending of this truly movie don't. doesn't doesn't make sense. Like, did she? Because they're clearly trying to. Did she? I feel like they're they're kind of trying to do the same thing as the first one with the fake out with the the Jason jumping out. Yeah. You know, at the end, but. But huh. like. <laughs> They didn't leave enough time. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, did Jason get Paul? Did, did, did they get Jason? Was there no Paul? I think Jason killed Paul and she probably did chop Jason. Jason has this wound in the next. Oh, movie. okay. The, the shoulder wound, I think. So, I think she did get him and then maybe she just kind of blacked out. She ran off and blacked out. And then the the conclusion with like Paul coming back and helping her and then him being involved in the fight and the place falling apart while they fight. I feel like none of that happened. Hmm, okay. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Where's Paul? <laughs> we'll have to watch the third one to find out. Do we find out? We don't find nope. out, do we? There is a part where there's a newscast and it says how many deaths there are in this new uh, massacre. And it's like the next day. Right. And uh, that's all we get. There's a reference to the number of bodies. Hmm. So, and I don't think Paul is included in that number. So I have no okay. idea. Maybe one of the others isn't included. I don't know. Or they say <laughs> that if you listen, you can still hear the screams of Paul. Ah! it could be anyone yeah i i don't know it's very strange uh and we get this closing shot where it's mrs Voorhees' head on the altar and it does this long slow zoom in and it seems like the eyes should open it does it's because the eyes originally opened and it looked stupid so they didn't do it <laughs> oh <laughs> they cut it out oh but then the third one <laughs> could have been mrs Voorhees getting revenge for jason for getting revenge for her for getting revenge for jason wouldn't it be crazy if just like each one switched off? One was Jason, one was Mrs. Voorhees. I would love that. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's already, it's just a, like, the, the point was to do Psycho. You know, they're they're doing the Psycho fake out. It's just they're doing it the other direction, and then they do it the other direction again. If they just keep going back and forth. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that is the end of Friday the 13th part two uh and i love it i love it so much it's one that has grown on me every time i've watched it i think it's really good 
Um, I, I like it quite a bit. I, I like most of the kills. Yeah, most of them are pretty I, good. I don't wish, I don't actively wish for the characters to die so that I don't have to listen to them anymore, which is nice. <laughs> It's it is crazy that Ted does not get killed it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, as a character, as like the only named character who gets away. He just uh, goes. Home. It is surprising that it's the prankster guy. Yeah, he just goes home because he's a townie. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's funny in and of itself, just kind of as as a as a concept. Just like the the Terry kill, where I don't know what happened, but conceptually, in terms of just the the way it's playing with the camera and how it's this whole strange audience surrogate thing makes it more compelling to me in an interesting way <laughs> but yeah cool movie it is uh the only one that treats jason as a serious being who is like a person <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, he's pretty firmly in monster territory after this isn't he basically definitely by the fourth one the third one it's arguable that because we really don't know what happened at the end of this one that he's just he gets up and continues his killing spree but at the end of the third one he gets wheeled away to the morgue okay (laughs) they like pick up the body and they take him to the morgue so he's he's very dead at the end of three and then he gets off off the slab at the opening of four (laughs) kick right on uh four is probably still my favorite but two high up there like one of the better ones yeah i think it's pretty good i i do think mrs Voorhees is a better a better villain than this Jason. Than this Jason. Yeah. I, I like later Jason as just sort of the perfect iconic slasher villain. I prefer Jason to Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger by far. I don't know. It, it's partly it's just the purity of Jason in that he is just a pure killing rage machine. There is nothing else beyond it michael myers has a lot of really creepy baggage michael myers is always trying to get with his sister there's a whole incest angle that is key to michael myers except for the first one where she's not even his sister well well no he kills his sister at the oh start, that's sister. still right like, right right the actual sister yeah. yeah yeah uh and then the later ones turn into this whole other sister right. thing because that you know it's it's what we've defined michael myers as he's the incest killer even though it's kind of not ever referred to as as that clearly uh and of course freddy krueger's a pedophile uh, he, so like yeah. they both have all this fucking baggage jason's just jason just kills this monster man he's got a hockey mask he looks fucking cool and he does crazy fucking kills because he is this force of nature <laughs> i don't know it's just more satisfying in a, in a weird sort of way there's less uh unpleasant baggage surrounding it (laughs) you can kind of cheer for the monster because he's just a murderer but he's not evil about it Uh, and especially as it goes on we create more and more repugnant (laughs) dead meats like all all the characters that he's killing are just more and more like i i want to see these people (laughs) they annoy the shit out of me obviously not at this point this point they're still all kind of like and it's oh i just remember the ones from the 2009 friday the 13th Oh, the worst man. Some of those, you really want that fucking main guy to die. Oh. The dude who says your tits are so fucking juicy. Oh. <laughs> I think his name's Trent. Oh God. Yeah. Right. Uh... <laughs> I, I did learn all the names of that one because they shouted them constantly. They come up a fair amount. Yeah. All right. Well, 
do you have any last thoughts on Friday the 13th part two before we head on to part two of our own episode uh no i think we've about covered it all right on to next and we're back for part two where we're talking finally about certified copy from 2010 directed by abbas kiristami now i watched this about two months ago so my recollection may be somewhat hazy. It's kind of a built-in issue with the podcast is that I'm always at least a couple weeks out from the second thing we talk about. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it doesn't help that we had this uh, unplanned hiatus. Well, that's the main thing. Normally, you know, a week, that's not a big deal. couple months is quite a bit. Um, yeah. But this is a movie that made a really significant impression on me. Uh, so I, I think when we left off way back in August, we were doing a double feature here. We were going to do Certified Copy and Thirst. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're mainly going to talk about Certified Copy, and then we're going to talk about three other, uh, three Park Chan-wook films uh, after that. Just do a little uh, Park Chan-wook corner. Because it turns out I don't think we can fill up an hour just talking about Thirst. No, I mean, Despite I definitely Despite the fact it's like two and a half hours long. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it quite a bit, but I don't oh, I have it, but... much of anything to say about it. Uh, and I mean, the others I have more or less to say about, it's just Decision to Leave would need a full episode and we'd need to watch yeah. Vertigo first. You need to see Vertigo before we talk about that one. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, certified copy. Oh, I I struggled with this one, and I'm still not confident that I fully understand it. It, yeah, I mean, like the first time I watched it, I didn't care for it. Uh, you know, a few years back, uh, like 2015 or something. Uh, but coming back to it recently, and just especially with a lot of meta stuff in mind, because this is coming off us talking about um, Milky Way. Oh, wow. This is right after that? This was right after the Milky Way. It was when I was watching it. So then there was the week in between, and then we were going to do this. Uh, But yeah, so it it, the the, the meta stuff was in my mind, and I was thinking about it. So it helped to approach it with that as a framework. Because it's it's weird. It's it's a movie about reality. Uh, (laughs) Natures of reality. uh, What makes something real what is the authenticity of art art imitates reality what makes what what creates value in art and both intrinsic and extrinsic see that for me this movie is about relationships or a relationship one or the other or maybe both it kind of changes i think that's Um, part of it i think it's more about the way stories of relationships are told than it is okay. about relationships themselves. I mean, it's it's a commentary on how people relate, but there's only so many ways you can tell that story, right? You know, every uh-huh. romance story is kind of, you know, they they kind of hit the same notes. This one doesn't do that because, I mean, it sort of does that, but it's commenting on them. It's sort of looking at the way we watch this type of story. It's the way people tell this sort of story. And it's like, it's, it's in, in the copy thing, it's, playing into tropes but it's also 
working in all these echoes. All of these other people are echoes of our main characters. It's uh, a, a, a universe of two where everyone else is a copy of them. Hmm, okay. I, I think part of the thing I struggled with, at least at first, is like, what does anything in this movie have to do with copies? Like, like they're, they're always talking about it, but I'm like, yeah, but maybe I don't get it because <laughs> nothing that happens in this movie seems to relate to anything they're talking about in the movie. Yeah, and I mean, the, but, the thing is that they are, like, everything that you're looking at, you're seeing copies, and the setting is a copy. Like, uh, uh, I, I guess as a starting point, this is shot in Tuscany. It's this beautiful Tuscany village, and they walk oh around it. It's in real time. It's beautiful, right? It's so, oh man, I just want to exist in this space i mean it is, is kind of yeah what i mean they do it's it's a movie where you're hanging out in this luxurious space and that's part of it just to begin with that part of the purpose of a sweeping euro romance movie is to just spend time in an exotic locale and drink it in and this is a movie where you just do that you're really doing that that's like a whole <laughs> purpose of the movie but in terms of the location we're looking at a real location that they are moving in realistically they're going very linear pattern from place to place we're following them almost in real time but they fictionalize the space by being within it they make a an exotic real location a fictional locale through being it um not unlike even friday the 13th part 2 we have crystal lake which is a real place in Jersey that's not Crystal Lake, but them using it as this location makes it the fictional locale of Crystal Lake, even though it is in reality a real place. Uh, okay. You get what I'm saying? <laughs> you, you gotta, uh, you gotta look of. at layers of reality here is, is sort of, you, you, in terms of copies, think of universes, uh, uh, parallel realities laid upon one another. But in terms of our reality and fictional reality, and why is more value placed in our reality than the fictional reality or vice versa? Right, right. Like, depending on the situation, people look for authenticity in art, but art by its nature cannot be authentic because it is a copy of reality. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's that's what he talks about, like in the beginning right, and yeah. i guess that's what his book is supposedly about sort of i mean it's really unclear what his book could be about and i think that's also really, <laughs> really key is. because the book in a sense this movie is an adaptation of his book but his book doesn't exist because his book is a fictional book right <laughs> and it's also about them walking around talking about his book and uh, talking about the inspiration for his book, which she turns out to be, except maybe she wasn't at the start of the conversation because maybe reality has changed since then. Yeah, the the uh, the nature of the relationship between the man and the woman changes uh, scene by scene, minute by minute. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's uh, built on sand. None of it really. I, 
in this sort of way, I mean, the relationship thing is kind of difficult because it is broadly following a relationship dynamic, but it's more about how we relate to a fictional character and fictional environments than it is about their story. Because you don't mm. ever get what their story is. <laughs> I don't know what that, it is. And then not really, I guess. They were just... You're deliberately not able to. You're you're just here to get the emotions of it. Uh-huh. And I guess one of the things that's key as well is the actors. Uh, it's kind of just a two-hander. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have... Um, oh, gosh. Uh, Juliette... Binoche, Binoche, Juliette okay. Binoche, who is yeah. incredible, so good in this. She, she plays um, the woman. <laughs> maybe herself. <laughs> maybe she's supposed to be an antiques dealer. Uh, yeah, but I mean, she's absolutely. I mean, she's there because she is a star. You know, yeah. she yeah. is the main character of the movie, and she is superstar Juliette Binoche, who is you know, a major figure in especially European cinema. I, I I came to appreciate this movie a lot more when I found out that she didn't understand it either at first. <laughs> it's totally fair. And I'm like, okay, all right, it's not just me. Okay. And so I feel better. Right. And so the the other person and our only character with a name, James Miller, our British writer, is a guy can't not uh a guy named William Schimmel, who's not an actor. I would not have guessed, actually. He conducts himself. He's good. Feels like a like one of those like classical British actors. He feels very naturalistic. And I think that's also part of what we're talking about. The naturalism of the performances is really key because the fictionality of the environment is so in your face. Like everything is extremely fictional, except you're in this totally linear environment with really naturalistic performances. It's just everything they say doesn't add up. Like the more, the closer you look at what they say, the more it's like, none of this fits together. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Especially like at the very end, they make a callback to something that they say in the very beginning. Except it's transferred because they, it's different people. yeah, they they use the callback. You could, I guess, you could say incorrectly that they use it in a different way than how it's set up to be used. Well, it's interesting because it transitions who it belongs to because they kind of are them, like they are everybody. Uh, and I guess it's also in James Miller being the only character with the name and this being an adaptation of his book, it being something that comes out of his mind, except maybe it's based on reality, based on this person he knows, even though this is a fictional environment. I mean, again, wheels within wheels within wheels is that it's all him. Everything is a projection of himself because it is a creation of his own mind, even though it's based in reality. It's his version of reality it's how he views the reality of the situation Hmm. i I will stop you um with a minor correction there is one other character who has a name uh the little boy julian right but he's not allowed to give his last name he has a last name he's not allowed to give it though explicitly and he tries to say it twice but he's not allowed to uh yeah that's i I, i'm getting away with my william schmel point uh schmel he he was um or he is a 
uh, a baritone. Like he's an opera singer. That's his thing. Oh, so he's a okay. performer, but he's not an actor. And uh, the the director saw him in an interview and just was like, yeah, this guy actually fits the style I want. And also being an opera singer, he knows multiple languages. He knows all of the languages. He knows English, French, but and Italian. James Miller only speaks English. Uh, yeah, but he only does right? it at the start. Later, he speaks right. all of it. Depends yep. when you come into it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's also key. And uh, in terms of, so Julian, uh, for Abbas Kiristami, I, I don't think you've seen any of his other films, right? Probably not. Uh, I've seen a bunch of them. I think I've seen most of the key works. One of the big uh, themes in his work is children as truth speakers, uh, children who just kind of are in situations and they are always the ones who will speak the truths that adults will not. So Julian is kind of an interesting character in this in that he tries to poke at the walls of the reality. He's the only one who's like, hey, hey, I'm playing with this. And he like tries to tell the audience his name. Like, no, no, you're not allowed to. And like, we have to cut to a different scene now. Oh, my fuck. That's why. Yeah. I couldn't place why. But at the very beginning. It's very abrupt. From, <laughs> like the, this, this kid. Like, no, what I mean is this kid. Like, his energy. And I couldn't place why. He reminded me so much of Bart Simpson, just like one one notch higher on the wholesome scale. Yeah, and, and because Bart does that, he like pokes at the fourth wall the way this kid kind of does. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that was why he reminds me of Bart. Yeah, I mean, Simpsons is, I would say, the total keystone to postmodernism for our generation. There's so much fourth wall breaking that they did that it became second nature to us comedically where – you know, up until that point in the 90s, it was more of a difficult concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Abbas Kiristami, his thing with children as truth speakers, I think that is also key. And also just, you know, if you're familiar with his work, all of his stuff plays with reality. Like that's always okay. his thing. Uh, he has this really great trilogy of films called The Coker Trilogy that we should do sometime. Uh, the first of them is this movie, uh, Where's the Friend's House? And it's this kid who is trying to go find his friend in the town and he doesn't know his way around and he just can't find his way and nobody seems to be able to help him. And it's just this kid trying to find his way around town. And that one feels extremely realistic. Like it's just, there's not a lot of the fourth wall. It feels almost documentarian. And then it turns into this trilogy where he keeps coming back to the place, but puts more of himself as the director, as a character into it. And the reality of like the previous film that he made here, where is the friend's house? And like, now he's coming back to see the actors after an earthquake in the second film. So, but it's still fiction. And then he's making another film and it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of that kind of thing. The slow uh, shift out of uh, filmic reality into quasi reality. Yeah, and I think part of why I struggle is because I keep trying to find some kind of literal way to explain what's happening in this movie, right. and I, there there isn't really one. No, like, not not even isn't really one. There actively is not one. There's intentionally not one. <laughs> <laughs> um, because when we first meet our characters, and in fact, like probably the first what half hour of the movie, it just feels like they're just two people who 
may have some like acquaintance history in the past, but they're just kind of getting to know each other for a work related thing. Well, and it's not until not not even work related. She's a fan. Fan in quotation marks, although apparently she hates his book. Well, so maybe she depends on the version. So she is yeah. the inspiration for the book. I I think that's supposed to be consistent. The in terms of the uh, she. I think it's definite that she is the uh, inspiration for it. She and her kid, because even at the start, there's that bit where she's talking to the kid and he asks, are you going to see him again? Yeah. Yeah. That's so right. the kid... it's unquestionable that they've met previously, but not here, hmm. not, not at this point, because like they haven't met there. They, after the thing is where they actually meet up. So it's a prior thing, which would be them as the inspiration, which sort of comes out as this weird kind of jagged story. Yeah, yeah, because he tells the story and, about the inspiration from the book later on, and she reacts in a way that like kind of leads me to think that he doesn't that she inspired the book, but he didn't know it was her until later it's on. It's weird. But, it feels like it could mean a lot of different things. And I mean, it's it's the ambiguity of the way it plays it, but it's it's like she, it, it seems like maybe he doesn't know, or it seems like he is unaware that, uh, it, that it was her. Like it sort of plays that way initially, or that yeah, the... <laughs> just the 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 it, it feels like she remembers it completely different from him there is there is a sense of that in the beginning um oh shoot i lost what i was going to say <laughs> but yeah there is a lot of in the beginning that she seems to remember things different uh and he's like well it's not fair of you to place me in the role of I think it's like the absent husband is what he says at that point. Yeah, because at that point, he has literally been given the role of absent husband character in this film, having previously up to that point just been visiting writer. Mm -hmm. Whereas she has mm -hmm. a separate conversation when he leaves the room and he becomes a new character because she's had a conversation with someone else and that trajectory has changed his. Yeah, and, and he seems to kind of like pick up on the fact that his role has changed uh, like in real time sometimes well, yeah it's weird because you know, he'll bristle at it and it's like wait we're, we're the the plot's changed we're doing a different thing now this okay you know, i'm just I'm readjusting my character as we go here <laughs> feels like the script is changing and, but like we're seeing the real time results of it but then he'll say something like two sentences later that is Clearly, he's now on the same page. Right. Like, or the way he learns languages. <laughs> the way right, he picks yeah, up languages like, over the course of the film. There's that part. I mean, we're, we're kind of jumping around with it because it's it's hard to talk about this film in a linear way, even though it's bizarrely linear, considering how it is. Because they, they get in a car. It is real time. They drive to a place. They get out. They walk all the way through the place. <laughs> but even with that said, like just the the purposes of it don't mesh up so like there, there's the point where they're at that uh historical wedding venue and 
Oh, right. She's there's she's translating for him. And at a point in the translation, he stops listening and we stop getting subtitles because it stops mattering. <laughs> he he just sort of trails off and like, we still kind of understand what's going on. It's just, we've kind of gotten to the end of the stuff that's pertinent to uh, our, our themes. And Oh, is and, is that when she takes him to see that painting? Yeah, like just before, because it's it's the next like uh, that's where she's translating, and then she kind of trails off translating because it seems like he already has started to understand. He's picked it up. Oh, okay. Because him not speaking Italian is a uh, a major point, and in fact, the whole for me, the whole turning point of the movie is when he's taking that phone call and she talks to that yeah, lady at the diner. Totally. That, that's completely where reality becomes totally unmoored in the movie. Like up to that point, everything feels very straightforward because you have, uh, well, I guess we, we could kind of start at the beginning. We have, yeah, let's start. Yeah, so there's his, his book signing thing, right? First. Yeah. Yeah. He's giving a, a talk about, his book and i guess this like university or college or something or maybe it's a museum it seems like it, it might be a just like a really trendy bookstore or something and the the thing is like uh, his his a, an italian translation of his book has become a surprise hit only in italy like it's not a big hit anywhere else yeah yeah which is why he came here to be like you know to i guess talk about slash promote his book so yeah translation this is another version of adaptation. This is another copy. Oh shit! Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He even comments is like, "Well, it's very good. It keeps the spirit of the original." Right, exactly. It keeps the spirit of the original, and this is a book that's about keeping the spirit of the original and the intrinsic value of the original <laughs> versus the copy. Or what is the value of the copy? If a copy is better than the original, is the copy better than reality? So. I don't know, man, but maybe we should just harvest some organs to make our counterfeit paintings. Maybe just. Uh, man, it's still baffling. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a year ago now we covered that. Something like that. Uh, Santo versus Dr. Death, by the way. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the translation thing, uh, I, I think that's really key. They set that out as a theme because we do switch languages a lot. And there's a lot of points where people are having arguments with each other in two different languages, which, I mean, that's a real good exclusively filmic metaphor that you can do for communication troubles in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And one that kind of is exclusive to the way you do this film with its sort of <laughs> okay. So again, now Italy and translation and stuff. Tower of Babel uh, or Tower of Babel? Uh, are you, are you familiar with Tower of Babel, the the concept, the biblical story? Loosely, yeah. Um, yeah uh, trying to build a tower to reach God, and God's like, "Wow, uh, no, fuck that." smash the tower now you all have to speak different languages right everybody in the tower speaks all sorts of like it's it's a polyglot world and you know hyper uh evolved you know everybody speaks multiple languages and it's scattered to the wind so all of the languages are scattered as well this is kind of supposed to be kind of a generational myth in terms of how languages uh are different all over the world rather than 
uh, starting from one root if everyone came from the same two people. Right, which, yeah. Copy. Um, <laughs> but uh, so the, the, the Tower of Babel thing, when people talk about Italian filmmaking in the 60s and 70s, that's the Tower of Babel method of filmmaking. You go to Italy and you have people from all sorts of different countries. You get them all. They just speak whatever language they speak and you just dub in the language afterward. You know, that's that's what all the spaghetti oh, um, westerns are like. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, we've seen movies that do that. Tons of them. I mean, that's that's what they did yeah. in Italy. That was exclusively how they made. They shot them silent. They put the sound in later. So, okay, Italy, Tuscany, that's where this is set. You know, Abbas Kiristami is not an Italian filmmaker. He is Iranian. This is his first non-Iranian film. Okay. He has never done a film not in Iranian before, I believe. So this is one that is not just not in his native language. It's in three different non-native languages. Right, because we're speaking French, Italian, and English in right. the film. And he goes to Italy. It's the Tower of Babel nation, you know, the nation where you do that kind of <laughs> filmmaking. But he shoots it all real, and he and we just have all of the languages that everyone's speaking all in a polyglot <laughs> the whole time. It's this hurricane of language. So again, I think that's intended. I think that's part of the theme. Okay, I never thought about that, but all right, that's cool. So yeah, uh, the the translation is certified copy book, which we have no idea what it's about. It seems very academic from his discussion here. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I don't really get a good sense of what the book is about, because I hope it's more than just what he talks about in this uh, speech here. It doesn't seem like it could be about anything. I mean, it it sounds like an essay. It sounds like something that would be uh, uh, just an essay on postmodernism. But obviously it has this character element because it involves the story of her and her son traveling in... What was the city? Was it Florence? I think it was Florence. I think it was yeah. Florence, yeah. Which is weird, because <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, they go to see David, uh, and yeah, the statue. They're of doing David. all these sketches of it, all the more copies, right? Everyone's sketching it, uh, and so it's the, and that statue, of course, turns out to not even be the original statue. That statue's anyway. a copy, and yeah, but it's it's the it's yeah. the one that everybody looks at, so it makes it real. It becomes real, and as well as that, of course, the the, the painting that she shows him, which is the real perfect metaphor for it. Mm -hmm. So she shows up with the kid, right? Yeah, she shows up. Um, she's like watching. The kid is just off to the side playing his Game Boy mm -hmm. or whatever. And he's got his speech. Uh, the I like the alternate title that for the book that he mentions. Forget the original and just get a good copy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's every time you buy a book, I guess you're doing that if you... Uh, didn't take it right out of the author's typewriter. Every book is a copy. Books are mass produced. Um, all media is mass produced, and art is. Uh, I mean, it, it, the the form of classical art as, as this thing in a museum is one that is very old world. So again, setting in Italy be really key. You can walk around all these fantastic old world authentic architecture that's deep in the core of the film it's all this very real ancient locations and she works in an antiques shop in this <laughs> yeah I, you know watching this movie i could never quite get a handle on what her job actually she, was she works in an antique store or 
Yeah, I maybe think... that's the reality she takes on because that's where she meets him. Maybe because oh fuck because yeah, she could... you, you know because when she just happens to be there and then he, he starts asking her questions about them and she's kind of plays back against it and then it sort of becomes that she works there <laughs> yeah right because <laughs> they don't refer to her working there until they're leaving the building and she happens to lock it up it's like oh i thought they both just happened to be in the same shop <laughs> I kind of figured she just sort of lived there and inherited these antiques. Well, it's weird because she's not from here and she's from France. Right. She happened to meet him traveling in Italy in a different city a previous time. Also, he might be the father of the child, but also I think he's uh, he is in in later points in the movie. I think very concretely not at the beginning. Like there's there's absolutely yeah. no possibility of it, but there's points later where it's clear like he's an active father figure who is in the home with them, which is totally not the case at mm-hmm. the beginning. And clearly not what's happening. <laughs> yeah, because the kid just the kid's like, who You're is you're gonna this go see that guy recently? again? Yeah. So that that completely doesn't work. <laughs> you you don't even like his book. You don't like him. What is this? Yeah. Um so the he does like some sign language that, by the way to her that that's so that's an additional language oh shit i did not catch that at all uh, she when he's uh saying that he's hungry he does sign language to indicate it to her and that's when she leaves the book signing yeah. oh okay so i didn't realize there was sign language i just yeah, thought I think it's some i, I think don't know it's what actual I sign language uh but yeah so okay. they leave and he he has to go um and yeah they, they this and is like the scene between them which is sort of a, a weird detour in the movie this is like the only time where it's not her yeah. and james yeah, yeah um walking the walking to the restaurant from the book signing uh it's interesting that the way they walk is exactly like how he describes the inspiration for his walk for his book later yeah. on how like she's walking ahead and he's just walking behind. They're not walking together. And- yeah, they're they're just kind of walking. They're they're both these two people going yeah. to the same destination, which is also what she and James are doing. They are not together, but they are going through all these locations together through the course of the movie. Oh, fuck me! Copies of copies of copies. <laughs> oh, that is exactly what's happening. And then he, she walks ahead a little bit and then she stops and he catches up. But then she goes ahead and nobody's actually making any effort to yeah. try to stay with the other, like he points yeah. out. Yeah. So this is what I'm talking about. The more you delve into this movie, you see all these things that parallel each other. That's, that's what the fun of it to me. <laughs> yeah, because. He's following her. It's not even really clear at the beginning of the movie why he's going on this car ride yeah, with her. It's it's bizarre. I mean, she seems to be a fan and he's signing these books. And I I mean, it it I, I think the only explanation is that they do they did meet this other time in Florence. And this is like the second time they meet. I was like, ah, well, let's let's meet up because maybe she helped to arrange him coming here. Because her shop seems to be really uh, close to the signing place. I do get the impression that they're like not close work acquaintances in the beginning. No, 
they, they know each other through work, but they don't work it together. It gave me an idea of, I, I've seen this, there's this documentary, uh, I think it's Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. I don't know if that's right. That might be actually one of his books, but it, it's it's uh, a documentary on uh, David Foster Wallace, and it has him going around on a book tour and doing book signings, and it very much feels like the same relationship of uh, the handler that you meet at the airport who takes you around to the book signings is is sort of the relationship they seem to have there. Like they're just met up, but they do have a semi-professional relationship, except she's mm. also a fan and she's familiar with his work because they're sort of in the same business in a weird sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. But, but also she seems to hate everything that he stands for in his book. Right. There's, whatever the, the antiques thing and him about copies and it's weird because he seems to have uh, so they, like I, I guess they they get in the car we, I, I, I suppose we're at the point yeah. where they're having the conversation in the car driving together right yeah 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 like the the, the kid talks to them it's like hey you're gonna see this guy again it's really weird that you're in love with this guy or that you want to fall in love with this guy is what he right. says and there's that but point where like whatever. he looks at the camera and tries to tell us his last name that he's not allowed to because it fucks with the intricate nature of non-reality because then we would know if he had the same last name as james miller mm -hmm. which is too concrete for yeah. us <laughs> yeah <laughs> but like but he's like yeah, playful it's about it too he's he, like, he's, he's like yeah. uh, an agent of chaos it's it's kind of neat yeah so they meet up the next day in the antique shop where she maybe i think lives. it's later the same day like i think it's just a couple hours later okay. like they go for lunch and then she yeah. meets him at the shop the antique shop she works at so the conversation they get into basically and it's sort of what becomes the whole movie's conversation is he argues for authenticity and that the greatest thing is reality. That seems to be his right. primary viewpoint is that uh, the real is what's beautiful. And then uh, she's interested in antiques and copies and history. She's the antique stealer, but they uh -huh. sort of, overlap in a lot like go back and forth they both have you know they, they contain multitudes they're echoing each other but they they have different approaches to it right yeah um like it, it feels like she doesn't understand his desire for authenticity because she seems to think that like he means like that something has to be real, which seems to be at odds with everything that's he's writing in the book. Mm. But for him, like authentic is like the feeling that he gets from right. the thing is authentic. I think that's what yeah, he really absolutely. She, she doesn't, and I didn't get yeah, that. Yeah, and I think the the feeling that you get from reality or from unreality as an authentic emotion is sort of the cornerstone of what this is about in terms of you're watching these extremely fictionalized people, but the way they're performed feels very authentic. And it's, it's almost an experiment to see if that still communicates emotion to an audience. Um, that is about the only way that's about the only ex to describe the movie as an experiment. It's about the only way that I can make it 
that I can resolve the movie in it my head. It is extremely experimental. Like this, this is a super experimental yeah. film, one that is very kind of actively playing with its own reality to make you constantly aware that it isn't. It's like you're not looking at a real thing. You're not looking at a real place, even though you are looking at a real place and real people in it in this very linear conversation. It's heavily constructed and, uh, you know, it, it's funny that it's a surrealist film, except it's strictly linear if it was silent. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Actually, yeah, the the dialogue yeah. is the only thing about this that's confusing. But the dialogue makes reality Make totally out. impossible, which is incredible. It's it's the power of language. Again, translation. You know, we're, we're looking at the, yeah. the, the, the extreme <laughs> power of language in that, you know, we, we use language to create our reality and especially a fictional reality where language is what builds it. Language is how you communicate it. Uh, although, of course, with cinema, you also have the image. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the car, she's talking about her friend her or sister. sister or maybe her, uh, Marie. Marie. I think it's specifically her sister. She she is stated as her sister, but I think sometimes it's maybe her and him when she's talking about Marie and her unnamed husband. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the in the end, it's definitely the yeah. two of them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, the story is that like she she's not she thinks that Marie. Oh, it's really hard to just for me to wrap it up. But she thinks that Marie like just doesn't take anything seriously enough, and that she that she's got like this shitty husband, and she thinks it's dumb that he that. Marie finds the husband stutter endearing. It's this whole thing about her finding the husband to be really lacking. And she doesn't understand why her sister loves him anyways. And just is this big romantic about everything in life. And it's the sister who likes the book. That that comes up with with the kid that she's like, no, it was the sister. It, It was Marie who liked the book. Because uh, the two of them happen to see it in a market together, you know they they happen to be walking together, or maybe they're the same person. <laughs> maybe, yeah, and <laughs> and like she's going off about like Marie's lifestyle, and James is like, I don't know, man. She sounds nice. Marie sounds like, cool. Oh, yeah, she sounds like pretty her. cool. Like that, it seems like a nice way to go through life to be, you know, romantic and happy about everyone and everything. He's like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I prefer to be critical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like he's signing the book and one of them is for Marie. So he, so she's like, just put this. And he's like, I'm actually going to write this instead. I don't like and that. she's like, no, no, no. Oh my God. No, no, please. No. It's like, well, I've already signed. It. And it's like, oh. like, well, you could use one of the other ones. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they get into debating his book. Right, they they sort of talk about how yeah. uh, she doesn't really agree with him in in his general formulation of reality. I guess, like in in terms of the value yeah. of a copy or the value of reality, like his, mm-hmm. so his his, um, his argument is like first he's saying about the Mona Lisa, right? The Mona Lisa is this great work of art, but it's still just a copy of the model who modeled for it. Right. Which is such an absurdly literalist, realist point of view. That's like the kind of asshole who's like, uh, I don't watch fiction. I don't read books that aren't 
nonfiction. Uh, I'm only interested in reality, okay? Uh, he, he kind of feels like that kind of dickhead. It's like, man, what, the Mona Lisa isn't good enough art for you compared to the original person who was a painting of? Get off your fucking eye, horse. What a dick. <laughs> and I, I do kind of feel like he is absurd. Like, he is not supposed to be the character that we sympathize with. That's why he's not an actor. <laughs> that that's interesting because I found myself sympathizing with him sometimes. slightly. More I think than sometimes, her. for sure, because the the big swerves she takes are hard to deal with because they oh, she's yeah. like in a different plane of reality than him because <laughs> she's an actress. She's and, the star. She's yeah. the main character. <laughs> <laughs> but like there's one point at the end where they have an argument and i'm like okay buddy oh man your point is valid but you're yeah, when they're in the restaurant it. and Holy he's shit. being rude to the waitress yeah and, oh man yeah he that's where you just turn against him completely like okay come on man it's like i agree with you and i think yeah, you're wrong an asshole and she just keeps it, it's weird because that's a complete shift from the argument he's making at this point because they're He's so negative and he will not let go of the little thing that he's pissed off about instead of just seeing the the big picture and enjoying life as it is, which is exactly what he's advocating for with her and her sister. She becomes the good sister in that scene, and he's just become the shitty husband that uh, she's got this complaint against. Well, that scene in the restaurant later on in the afternoon might also be 15 years later. In the relationship, right. well, that, even, that, but spatially, yeah, it's, spatially, it's, you know, yeah. And they continued to walk in a straight line the whole time, and we've watched it. But th- th- that's like the, <laughs> the other element of this movie is that it could be a microcosm of not just a relationship, but just relationships. It's an idea of just this compressed block of all of these different shifts that could happen in a relationship, and the way it grows and deteriorates over time in different ways and up and down. But we're seeing it all compressed into like 90 minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just seeing it all happen <laughs> in that block of time as if it's all in that period of time, like not not shifting forward in any real time. Just we're we're watching it happen. And it leaves the characters totally yeah. confused. <laughs> <laughs> there are points like I, I I love that it has this sort of tidal wave of reality that there's that point where uh james just has to come sit down on some steps and recuperate it's like i don't even know what's happening anymore <laughs> well i just love like i watched the interview with the director and julia binoche says to him like who is this woman what is her deal is she crazy am i crazy and he says to her like I, I love it. He literally does the "You are yeah. Lisa Simpson." He says, "You are Juliette Binoche," right? Which was also instrumental to helping me understand. And yeah, the movie. it's so key. She is a star. She is the actress. She is a main character. She is like a great European superstar actress, and it's pointed to have a guy who's not an actor as the other side of that. <laughs> yeah it's it's such an interesting dynamic because like they still play off each yeah, other it's, really it's well not all that he puts in a bad performance like he still is totally natural oh, he's, good. he's good it's just that 
our sympathies are so easily with her because she is the one who knows how to do it but then she overdoes it so then we're back with him and then he's just like being his normal angry guy self like he just feels like every annoying boomer you see it next to you sending back food at a restaurant he's like man fuck that guy i don't even care if i agree with him <laughs> why do they ask my opinion for the wine if i'm not allowed to say that i have a bad opinion oh, of man, the wine just becomes so intolerable literally yeah. <laughs> they they arrive at this wedding chapel place right he asks a very key point. question as they're going in is this where you got married oh yeah. fuck i missed that he he, he he uh juts that out there and she doesn't respond she keeps walking because she's not confirming the reality of it uh because again that's something that based on later it would be is this where we got married <laughs> right yeah like uh <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um he doesn't want to get his picture taken with the brides. Or like for some reason they want this newlywed couple wants their picture taken well, they, with him. They've and been her. walking around, they've been having all these conversations about the place, and she, as the fabulist of the group, is making stories up about their past, or maybe their true stories about their past that uh, we don't know about. But she's been going and talking about them and saying that this is their wedding anniversary, and this is where they got married. Oh, so yeah. So this bride and groom <laughs> who are just getting married, they want him to come in, and they want to get a picture with all four of them, because you know these people have been walking around talking all this uh, stuff about copies and love and everything. And the nature of love, because they, they're sort of going on about all of this stuff everywhere they go. And he's sitting out there, yeah. and this is where he yeah. first started to become just a fucking annoying grump. <laughs> yeah, he's like, no, not no, that's this isn't what I mean. He's like, I no. this is a fiction and I don't want to deal with it because he feels it's her fiction that she's created and he doesn't want to support this fictional reality of them as a couple. But is it fiction or is it him being this guy who just doesn't want to support the actual couple? Uh, is it both? It's both. I don't know. Like it's it's in the film. Eventually, like they the the bride comes out and convinces him and they, they do the pictures and stuff. But like it's also around here where they go to the thing and she's doing the translating, and then the translating just gives off because it's like, okay, we've we've got it and he's got it, he understands now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's right around here and he just isn't all that interested she's like well it's an example of what's in your book it's like yeah but you know i have lots of examples in my yeah. book sure it's like and she's like no don't you get it it's like and i'm actually not sure what she's trying to communicate with him or why he's not having yeah, it. it i mean it's it's definitely them jockeying for understanding the reality that they're within but so th this specific painting that she's brought him to see it's this perfect example of his certified copy because it's this painting that has been beloved for years and it was thought to be the original for centuries and then after you know all this time someone realized that it's a copy of this one that's actually in florence right now but they've yeah. decided to just keep this one enshrined and just add an extra plaque to say, but it's not real. And we just decided to keep it because it's really nice. <laughs> I mean, it's already centuries old. It's become real. It is an antique. It's still the piece of art. It's still like it has that accrued value. People have been. 
yeah, people have been looking at that painting and been feeling whatever it is that art's meant to make them feel for centuries already. Did that? Did that just suddenly retroactively unhappen because no. it's a fake? And no, it's no. weird because he doesn't seem to agree with that, and I don't understand his point. <laughs> Yeah, again, he yeah, seems to be basically. this extreme literalist who just is very persnickety and he wants things to be a certain way. He wants everything to be cataloged and real and understandable. And you need to be able to nail down every single point of the story. And that's not the kind of movie we're making. And at this point, I'm still on his <laughs> side because it's like, why is this work acquaintance want to do all this shit with this guy? Why is she getting so up in his face? He just wanted to sign some Or did books, he? Man. It's hard to say. Nice. Is he being nice? Well, yeah. It is. It is <laughs> but yeah, this is say. where they go. This is where everything uh, shifts. They go to the cafe. And he has to go. The cafe. Yeah. Now, this is where I first realized that something isn't what yeah, I he, thought he it was. He has to go step away and take a call. Uh, and she just starts having a chat with the cafe owner about him because she's been sort of overhearing some of their conversation. Yeah, so the cafe owner is like, oh, your husband, this, well, it's, and there's a few normal... The, the key thing sorry, is that ahead. she says that uh, she's commenting on, oh, your husband, how how lovely it is that you translate for your husband. Uh, and she's like, yeah, he only knows English. He hasn't ever uh, managed to learn any of the other ones. But, you know, and the, the, the owner, you know, they have this whole conversation about, oh, yeah, you know, conversation, you know, uh, Communication in marriage is so important. <laughs> but but she eventually just starts going off about how difficult it mm-hmm. is living with him and how shit he is at like this isn't just uh this isn't just a matter of she thinks that he's the husband and no. she doesn't correct her. This is like she's she, she leans into this. it. She's like, and he's never there. Yeah, and it, so there. Here it becomes a question: of, Is it a relationship of he? Is she talking about the actual husband she has? That's what I thought. Like maybe she's projecting and bitching about her actual right. husband. Which I mean, you could potentially interpret it as she does that. She kind of talks about the husband, and that's why he's saying that he does not want to be put in the role of the absent husband, who is this other guy that exists but no but i don't feel no. that there is another no, I guy who so exists either. uh i i mean th- i think there is some previous husband but i don't think she's with him yeah no no uh, nothing else in this movie it gives me the idea that she is currently no. with anybody but yeah it's else. kind of like in our first movie in in friday the 13th part two where uh our final girl's sitting at the counter and she's creating Jason's backstory and she's just making herself weirded out by it. Like she's sitting there and making it up and it's becoming <laughs> reality. That's what's happening in the scene with her, with the uh, Binoche. She is creating the new reality that this movie has. She's. Isn't it fucked up that he wouldn't learn <laughs> yeah, Italian exactly. It's, it's becoming that. And then it's like, Oh, Okay. And he comes in and he's like, oh, so what's going on here? I'm like, wait, I'm I'm your husband now? Ah, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no. She just said, she just mistook you for my husband and I didn't mm-hmm. correct her. Then I went off on a rant, but, you know, we don't have to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, and they that. go outside and then 
they start to speak in two languages. Their languages fracture. They're in French and English now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's around here, or maybe it was before this, where she gets the phone yeah, it's call right about, about here. the it's, kid. It's like he does his call, and then they have the thing, and then she gets a call, and it becomes our son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because there's some problem with him. He He won't do something. <laughs> Yeah, or or like he wants right. he's supposed to go be at this place at this time, but he wants to do this other thing that won't get he right. Won't be he able like to wants get to go to time. the pool first or something. And they're like, there's no possibility yeah. of that. Reality that like that's not how time or reality works. And, and like James is like just kind of trying to interject. Um and at the end he says to her, like, like, well, you know. My family lives their life, I live mine. And she's like, well, you're both destroying my life. And it becomes a thing where, like, he starts to have arguments about their home life together. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's shortly after this, he says to her, this is the first time he acknowledges her, what I thought was her raving (laughs) lunatic reality. He says, I can't remember the last time you came down for breakfast. Right, and then it becomes this thing like, well, you know, the other night was our 15th wedding anniversary, and you fell asleep. (laughs) Yeah, oh, oh God, that argument. Uh, We're we're not quite there yet. That's like the next, that's the big blow up. uh, I think so, yeah. I think that's pretty soon. Oh, I think you're right. Because it's all of the relationship stuff kind of all lands in a pile. They get really mad at each other for a bit, and then they start to run into some other couples and chill out for a bit. And then they get really mad at the dinner table again. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I think... I think it's around here they meet like that yes. that first yeah, old couple. It's after couple. the argument about um, the anniversary. And then they run into the old couple and they're echoes of them. They're older versions of them. They walk, like, if you watch the way the two couples walk, they're mirroring each other's movements. It's really wild. Oh shit, I didn't catch that. And the older guy, like, he 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 takes James aside and he's like, this is how you want to act with your wife. I'm going to give you some advice. This is what she really wants. It's like a version of him from the future who's come back to Donald's like, okay, we've been doing this all wrong here. Just do it this way and she'll be really happy. And he's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it works yeah, he for takes his advice of how like he just puts his hand on her back and just in a in a reassuring fashion and it works. <laughs> yep. Uh okay, yeah. So this is where they go to that restaurant and she goes to the bathroom and uh makes herself up, does herself right, up. It's super the poster nice. image. That's yeah. that's oh, actually the theatrical poster. Okay. It's her looking at herself in the mirror. Obviously, mirror being another oh, okay. you know, copy, obviously. And, and and she gets back to the table and to find out that he oh, man, carried she's that so the fucking mad. <laughs> Wine isn't good yeah, enough. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's, wine's not good enough. And it's like, well, and then they got offended and they won't talk to me now because I said it wasn't good enough. And well, if they didn't want to hear my opinion, why did they ask for it? What, what is the point of all this traditions and stuff? And, blah, 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 blah. and she's like, I made yeah, myself like you pretty could comment for you. on that. You know, I just went and got myself all prettied up and stuff. That would have been nice. I mean, we just had all this arguing about the, you not being there for the relationship. What the hell, man? And he's like, well, I'm mad. Don't you get it? 
Yeah. So they, they rehash the anniversary yeah. argument and he's like, okay, all right, here's what I want to say about that. Now you were driving with our son, uh, whatever, many yeah. years ago, and you dozed off on the road. Did you stop loving your son because you dozed <laughs> off? Which, and like that is like the shittiest argument. Like that is such a bad faith argument. Yeah, like yeah, it's, it's just, and then he just starts laying. Yeah, it's it's him just trying the worst bad faith argument that like clearly he has no leg to stand on in terms of his argument. It's just like you know, dude, you could just apologize. That would be totally doable, and then everybody could move on. But I guess not. I guess we missed – there's another younger yeah. couple that they meet somewhere in there because they come oh, and knock yeah, on the right. window and try to get them to come out. I, oh, yeah, no, that's the couple who they took the photo. That was the yeah. wedding So they, they show yeah. up while they're in the restaurant, and they try to get them to come out, but James is too angry. <laughs> yeah. And this is where he, <laughs> then, he's, like, overwhelmed by all of the shifts in reality. He has to go sit down on a stoop and just rest a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's sitting down. She's sitting next to her. She's, like, taking off her shoes. She's like, I shouldn't have worn these. And he's like... They're, like, talking yeah. kind of normal again. Like, they didn't just have this gigantic blowout in a mm, restaurant. I'd argue it's exactly like they just had a gigantic blowout in a restaurant. This is, like, a couple who have just had a big fight. And now, like, everybody's sitting down like... oh. Okay, so yeah, let's. Really? I I don't uh, couple yeah, that. I've seen this, <laughs> but yeah, they they just like all right, let's just stop it, start at base one. I'm like okay, let's talk about this stuff, and they they go to the church so she can go inside and take her bra off. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> she she tells him and later it's... that that's why, but she's like, oh, I gotta pop into this church, and uh, they they run into those older people again. Right, yeah, yeah. Or no, I think they're even older. Like, I think they're the elderly couple. Like, there's four iterations. We have the younger couple, which is them at marriage, right? The the mm-hmm. the hope and flower of the relationship. There's them at this middle yeah. state, which is really contentious. There's them as the older couple who have reconciled. And then there's them as the really elderly couple. Right, right. Um... And they, they have a connection with them. Because uh, the the elderly yeah. couple uh, lived next to the hotel where they honeymooned. Oh yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. That okay. I, I was trying to remember which other couple, but yeah, okay. Now I yeah. remember the the oldest couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, she just th- she decides they're going to go into this hotel, right? And this is just it's the, finally a room where they shut off the world around them. And it is just two people having this relationship argument slash. I mean, it's it's weird. Some of it's it's not fully argumentative. It's no. It's more like it's a come down fight. You know. <laughs> yeah. They're they're kind of like all right. Yeah. Let's, let's reconcile. Let's try and be as romantic as we can be. Let's look back on ourselves. Yeah, and she's like lying on the bed. She's like looking at him. She's like. Don't you want to give this a try? Don't you want to? Don't you want to do this with me? And he's like, "I have to." Care. Or she says to him, "James, right?" Which is the 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 brother or the the stuttering, the stuttering husband, husband of Marie. Of the, yeah, she does yeah. his thing, uh, which is interesting because she's trying to become them, and that's the thing he says he wants. 
but then his original reality reasserts. He's like, well, I got to catch my nine o'clock yeah. train, though. <laughs> yes, catch his nine o'clock train, which he, he did establish at that the at the beginning. very beginning. I don't know if I yeah. mentioned it, but he... Yeah, it's it's established right at the start. And it's like, oh, yeah, shit. I mean, they're still just these people who just met at the start of the day. And, like, reality is just broken <laughs> and up. We're, like, crying in a hotel room. And, oh, man. And she's, like, looking radiant on this bed. And it's, and- it is, like, a genuine <laughs> emotional moment. Like, I do feel that it is the, the moment where the emotions really hit in the movie, where it just feels authentic. <laughs> and then you just, like, they up and is like, oh, yeah, no, this isn't real. And none of this is real. And, like... It it it's like a table flip again right at the end, even though it's sort of an emotional one in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. And then we close with just uh just like a long shot close up of his well, face. He, he is looking in the mirror now at his copy. Uh just oh. like she was in the middle section looking in the mirror and being the star, you know, vibing up. He just looks in the mirror sadly and like, well, church bell tolling is like, well, I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go get my train. <laughs> guess I'm guess I'm not hooking up with the yeah, movie star or did move on or... out of this this movie, this relationship, this universe, this world. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I have to go now. My people yeah. need me. Uh and that's that's it. Sort of. That's it. I mean, there's a um, lot more and there's a yeah. lot less. I mean, it's it's such a hard one to talk about in a line in terms of plot because it's all just about layers of reality and echoes of things. Like the more you look at all of the details, you see so many things paralleling and echoing. One possible literal interpretation of this whole thing is 15 years ago, they had a fling. She's not over it. He forgot all about her, but they had a kid and he's slowly realizing, Oh shit, this is the girl I hooked up with 15 years ago. I don't think so. I don't think that works but at all. It, uh, it still but... doesn't work. No, it doesn't work because the argument with the falling asleep at the wheel. No, that, that doesn't no, work. The argument that I've heard is they're, they're the only argument that I've heard. That, uh, the, the thing is arguably that uh, he is the other man in the relationship. So he's uh-huh. like, taking on the role he's role-playing as the husband in these public spaces okay and it could sort mm. of fit but i feel like there are specific points where they point to the nature of their relationship and the reality and especially just our son and talk about their morning routines it just it doesn't work mm-hmm. I, I feel like anyone trying to make this into one literal reality is actively not looking at all of the pieces well that's that's why i struggled with this so much at first is because i kept trying to make it into one thing one story and i couldn't do it and my brain wouldn't let me not do it i think it. that's fair too and like especially the first time i watched it the problem i had with it and i think it's how i described it when i first talked about it way way back when it entered the stacks uh is that my impression of watching it the first time because i did not enjoy it it sort of felt like they were like i thought it was one linear reality but it was just them play acting the whole time it was both of them playing this language game that Mm. we are not privy to the rules of (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I'll agree that we aren't privy to the rule. I, I, I sure. kind of felt like at the end of it, I watched a movie of Calvin Ball, you know, from Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin Ball, the game where they're making oh, up the rules constantly. This felt like that to me when I watched yeah. it the first time. It was completely the vibe I got, but it really opened up to me coming back to it a couple years later. It took me some time. Uh, it took me several watches before I finally began to be okay <laughs> with this movie. <laughs> it's fair. It's fair. It's a difficult one. It's not one that I would uh, easily recommend. <laughs> no, you got to to recommend this movie. I have to know the person I'm recommending. Yeah, and I, I feel real well. And, and yeah, it's a difficult one because you kind of might need to see it a couple times. <laughs> the the first time yeah, is yeah. is always going to be a hard sell. I think most people would be a hard sell for the first viewing because it's mm-hmm. kind of like it's it's playing with you, like it's it's messing with you as the audience. It lulls you into a linear reality, and then it pulls the rug out, and then it becomes totally surreal while maintaining a linear <laughs> reality. Yeah, I just remember like that scene where she's going off to the yeah. cafe lady i'm like where did all this come from who are you actually talking about how are you talking about and then he and comes just... in and he yes ends it <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. oh okay i mean that's what i thought it was just this whole weird improv thing but yeah there there was a time that i thought that too like okay here's what's really right. happening the director handed them scripts and told them to say the words in the scripts. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that is really key. It's making you aware of its fiction, and it's really, really heavily fictionalizing everything, despite working in an extremely neorealist setting. Like, we're in Italy, we're in this Tuscany village, we are walking from place to place, we're driving from place to place, we're in real time, which is so much to do to make it extremely fictional. Yeah. Like we follow sunrise to sunset. I guess that's another thing which is harder to talk about because I don't think you've seen them is the sunrise trilogy. No, no, I haven't. I guess it's called the before trilogy. There's before sunrise, before sun, sundown, before sunset. Uh, I can't remember what they're called. Before it's uh, three movies with uh, Ethan Hawke and I think it's Julia Delpy. Doesn't sound familiar. You know, it's, this English-speaking guy and this European woman who is bilingual, they happen to meet, and he has just this one day in town, and they have this whirlwind romance where they're just walking around all night talking to each other until the sun sets, and he has to go. Really good movie. It was like okay. an art house smash. It's a Richard Linklater guy who did Boyhood. Right, right. And Waking right, yeah, Life, yeah. and I'm sure I've seen other yeah. things of his. So, uh a few years later they do a sequel and it's them meeting up again they happen to have this just this one more day where they happen to meet up and we kind of gather through the course of it that they have met up a couple times in between and their relationship has you know changed over time it's become more contentious and then there's a third one where they have they're an actual couple now they're married and they've had this whole history and they do like they did them real time they did them like 5 years apart each Okay, okay. This kind of feels like it's a commentary on those specific movies, but like cram all three of them into one ninety-minute block of time. <laughs> Which is, yeah. I mean, it kind of, it, it kind of works. works. <laughs> uh, it's 
it, it, it's weird because it still delivers the emotions at the end, but it's like getting there, you're so confused. <laughs> I think well, you mentioned that it works as if you take out all the dialogue, this movie works as yeah. a silent film um, and makes a lot more yeah. sense that way. I think also if you took out the visuals and just had it as like a novel and like it would also work too because your brain would just invent the time passing places right you just put three asterisks between different spaces and it's like okay well now we've jumped forward to a different area and different space and time but it doesn't work when you're just watching them go to the next location yeah well it works but but you have to rewire your brain it's difficult there there's a bit of a a shift okay when you're changing gear is there but yeah, I love it. I really genuinely love it. Uh, I definitely did not the first time I saw it, but it's one that really, really grew on me. Uh, I like it. It's growing on me, but like you say, I it's hard to recommend. Uh, yeah. I... <laughs> it's a tricky one. So before we move on to part three of the Watch Stacks, uh, you watched three different Park Chan-wook films in the, the time off. Uh, both of us watched yeah. them. Uh, we thirst. Uh, we were gonna cover thirst. There's but... not a lot to say, and I mean, blank check podcast. They've just done all three of these. <laughs> you could go for full coverage there. Yeah, I mean, I I, I actually listened to those, and I kind of wish I hadn't because now I'm going to be hard pressed to not just repeat what <laughs> I they said. Listened, I, I listened to two of them, I think. Actually, you know, I didn't listen to the one on Thirst, but I listened to the Handmaiden and Decision to Leave episodes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, same for me, actually. I listened to half of the Thirst one, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Thirst, the Handmaiden, and Decision to Leave, uh, which I would say escalating in quality, personally. I go back and forth on Decision to Leave and Handmaiden uh, being for which one is my favorite. Usually... Right now, I think my favorite is whichever one I've thought about the most recently. That's fair. I would say they are very close. They are both really, really good. And I like Thirst quite a bit, too. They're all really good movies. I love Thirst, but, like, yeah, all these other ones, everything else that Park Chan-wook has done that I've seen is edged out Thirst. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it is my... Mm, I might put it over one of the one or two of the vengeance ones maybe mm. it's not over old boy obviously no, no. uh and it's it's definitely over his first two <laughs> they're okay i kind of like the first one second one meh um but so yeah let's, let's kind of go through them in order thirst just general thoughts do you do you want to go through any specific details do you have any broad thirst is like feels like an anime it's like you've got a priest who wants to cure a disease so he goes he gets infected but now he's a vampire and now he's got vampire powers but now he can't be in the sun right he's like a so, self-flagellant priest and all of that oh stuff. yeah right I, yeah there's, there's, there's that so whole much plot in this and all of it matters it's extremely dense uh and you know part of it that it's based on an like a 19th century novel, like an old French novel that he's just added more stuff to. (laughs) Like usually when you adapt a novel for the screen, you take stuff away to make it fit. And Park Chan-wook just crams more and more in. Like the vampire stuff wasn't in the original. 
How does what is the movie about then without the vampires? How does it work? It's like it's it's just the Leo Johnson part of the story with the <laughs> the Oh yeah. Part. So so he ends up uh meeting up with this family. Oh, this horrible abusive family. They're all bad. They're all bad. Um but the, they abuse this like adopted sister who he, the mother made her marry the son. the son, the like stepbrother, it's so gross. Oh, Kang Wu is disgusting. <laughs> Just absolutely fell. Uh, grossest um, part of the movie is definitely the sex scenes where they're imagining him in between them. Imagining? No, I think that's his ghost yes. in there. Yeah, his ghost just wedged <laughs> in between them. Uh, like some gross-ass Kappa ghost. Yeah, it's really just... And he's, Ugh. like, grinning, and he's wet and squishy, and he's just, The wetness that he brings with him as a ghost all the way. You know, it's like Jason. There, There is a wetness associated with ghosts. That's a big Japanese thing, wetness and ghosts. Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, uh, this one, because he drowned. True, true. And, I mean, that's that's Jason, too. Oh, yeah, true, true. Uh, they could be but man imagine if uh hang woo attacked camp crystal lake instead of jason or and and, like the mother was mrs Voorhees. you could probably throw in um oh shit what's her name from the ring as well oh um samara oh fuck sadako samara sadako i think it's both yeah you know what i think you're right i think it's it's been both yeah uh yeah she'd fit in yeah, I mean, it, she had to have a lot to do with the Jason. They both died by drowning. They both you know, died as children, <laughs> came back to haunt. They both have these whole long franchises that they've built. Yeah. Um. So the priest decides he's going to get the girl out of the abusive relationship, but uh, she manipulates him, and it turns into this whole thing. Yeah, it turns uh, out that like even though she's in this abusive situation she's not herself a good person <laughs> just the it, it's sort of like an argument that the the fact of someone being a victim does not necessarily make them good or noble <laughs> no especially when your entire life you have never seen a good or noble person to set an example for you yeah you, you've really seen no demonstration of proper humanity yeah yeah so he wants to be in like one of the good vampires oh i don't kill people to take their blood i only go to the blood banks and shit yeah he uh, he's a, a what do you call it a um ethical vampire <laughs> a vegan vampire well not yeah, really kind of i i feel like there's that's that the tv series true blood has a vegan vampire concept of they like i've never seen that i had a friend way back in the day who like really wanted me to and i almost did in the dying days of hmv i worked there and Mm. they there's this thing called hmv radio uh which was just an hour of stuff that they would update once every several months and we just have to listen to the same fucking hour over and over again oh, and one of the things was an ad for true blood suki stackhouse uh and the yeah and they, i guess the idea with true blood is they have developed a synthesized blood that they sell by the can and is you know in and, and vampires are just totally incorporated into society 
Okay. Yeah. Oh God, we should talk about like what the disease is in uh, Thirst. Like, oh yeah, it's like Ultra Ebola. Turbo leprosy. <laughs> it's it's yeah, it's Ebola esque. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he he decides to go personally get infected with it on purpose so that he can be. I mean, it's it's a self flagellation thing more than anything else, but technically. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the the excuse it's is that it'll help with help research. Find a cure, yeah. yeah. And he ends up being the only one who survives. I love like he pukes the blood into the flute that he's playing. Well, he dies, but he comes back because he got a blood transfusion from a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that that's kind of how it enters him. Which yeah. is also funny. That's that's kind of a, a fun hook. I like that. The blood transfusion mm-hmm. from a vampire. Yeah, and he just like drinks so he volunteers at the hospital because he's like one of those medical priests yeah and he just drinks blood not like piercing with the fangs but like just drinking it from an iv from this big fat comatose patient patient yeah because you know one time he told a story about how he loves to feed the hungry yeah he he has this one beloved story that he used to tell about uh this one time that he helped to feed some people who were hungry and it just meant the world to him so it's like, come on, I know he'd be okay with me drinking some of his blood. He likes to feed the hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, he obviously ends up turning uh, the girl into a vampire at some point. Because, yeah, and you know. she wants it right away, and he's really hesitant because she seems it, sketchy. <laughs> it takes a long... <laughs> sketchy enough to not turn her into a vampire, but yeah. not sketchy enough to not fuck her in the house every day. Yeah, I mean... Th- that kind of thing will happen. This is also an extremely horny movie. Like oh, it's very, one of vampire very movies. Thirsty. Yeah, vampire movies are traditionally horny. This one's extra horny. Uh, it's it's. I I would say all three of these movies are extra horny. <laughs> I was going to say what about a decision to leave is a different kind of horny. Yes, decision it's to leave very. Is, it's it's like a. Ooh. It's very hot. <laughs> it's detached horniness. It's really weird. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the, she becomes a vampire. Obviously, she's a nightmare, and he just has to kill them both. <laughs> yeah, the, there's like the whole, the abusive mother ends up becoming like comatose wheelchair bat. Yeah, new shoes. New shoes. Yeah. Twin Peaks. It's exactly that. She is completely doing that for a while, and then there's also this thing with the mob we're dealing with them all sorts of shit oh yeah the, the mob um there's there's the blind bishop right who is like uh, i the only reason you're going to the hospital is to fix my eyes don't cure this fucking oh right turbo leprosy well because he wants to become a vampire technically he's just been playing yeah. the long con yeah there's so much plot <laughs> it's insane <laughs> i just want to be a vampire be able to see the sun well you can't see the sun you're a vampire okay well i want to see the night it's <laughs> yeah. not that great you know it's like, well it's not that great and of course he uh because he's come back from the dead he's this miracle person and there's all these people camped out like he's a rock star oh, yeah. <laughs> like he's jesus and he hates it so much he can't stand oh, any yeah. of it yeah uh song kang who ho is oh. the, our main priest fantastic as always yeah uh it ends in like it feels like a looney tunes bit where like they're out in the 
in this car in the middle of fucking nowhere, perfectly flat. Sun's about to rise. He's trying to do like a double suicide, and she just does all this wacky shit to hide from the sun. It's it's quite cartoonish, especially when she's buried in the ground under the car. <laughs> that was very funny, and him just tossing like when when he pulls the door off and just hucks it like a frisbee into the ocean. It's a good shit, <laughs> and, and it culminates in the most amazing sunset I have ever seen, or sunrise rather. Yeah, that I've ever seen in my life. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah, I, it's a really good movie. So you know, when we say it's the least of these three, it's still really good. So the other two are just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, like this movie, fucking. If I had never seen a Park Chan Wook movie before, this movie would make me go, "Oh my god, I need more." Yeah, and like it's it's totally a great time. Yeah. Uh, um, so second one. The Handmaiden. The Handmaiden. Now, this is uh, horny. This one's a little horny too. <laughs> horny. Uh, this one as as well. You got like a whole. It's extremely plotty. All of these films are extremely plotty. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I, I love the plot for this one. Is uh, dude wants to marry this uh, wealthy noble lady, so she so he he's a con artist and he tricks this uh, girl to be her handmaiden to kind of like try to be his wingman so that he can inherit all this money and then stick her into the insane asylum once they're married and the, everything's sealed. And that's like the first hour of the movie. And then it turns out the movie's not about that at all. Yeah. It's like, that's his plot. That's the plot that he thinks he's in. And then, or, no, that's the plot that she thinks he's that the, right. the handmaiden thinks she's right. in. And it's partially the, the, the story that he thinks he's in. Uh, yes. He doesn't. She doesn't realize that she's a scapegoat, which is the big rug pull mid movie where they, yeah, you know, she ends up in the insane asylum. But then there's an additional rug pull. I think there's maybe a couple. It's a there's movie that, a few. yeah, it's a movie that just like keeps you on your toes. Uh, I can't remember what I compared it to first. I think, but there, I was like, I thought I was watching one thing, but then I ended up realizing i was watching wild things mm. i can't remember what the first thing i thought of was is there was a plot very similar mm, anyway it doesn't sure. matter it ends up being wild things and everyone's stabbing everyone in the back pretty much well it, it's weird because they there there does end up being a solid couple it's just oh, there there yeah. does and yeah. uh yeah and it, it ends up being the couple who you think it's going to be from the beginning but just not the way that you think it's going to get there. Yeah, it takes some detours. You know, they're for a while they're James and Miller and uh, woman. You know, and they're yeah. angry at the fountain. But you know, eventually they're the old couple at the church, and everything's gravy. And they can have their do uh, <laughs> me like the count would. It's <laughs> fucking sex scene. Oh my god! The sex, like both of the sex, like they have one sex scene, but they show it in two chunks. Because you get part of it, and then you reveal the rest of it later. Uh, but yeah, her, yeah, the the sex scene is very funny at first, and also, yeah, I mean, it's sexy. Like it's oh, it's a ten minute long sex scene, and in terms of like in extremely long sex scenes in movies, it's hard to for a movie to earn it. But this movie is so horny, and it is so about <laughs> every bit of its soul. That it really earns it. <laughs> this movie yeah. needed to have that that long of a sex scene with how everything else is. 
Yeah, because like everything, everything shakes out. The whole movie centers around that sex scene. We yeah. don't know it the first time you see it, but like, well, yeah, that's, that what, that's is what I mean. The crux of everything. You can only see half of the sex scene because the rest of it is too important <laughs> to see. <laughs> it's to see too it important to the plot. Yes, yeah. absolutely <laughs> crucial sex scene. Maybe it's the most important sex scene in all of film. I don't know. It's, it's up it's there. Crucial. It's very important. But yeah, I mean, it's it's such a blast. It's a really good mystery. Like it, it's very effective. It works really well when it pulls the twist at the middle. I'm like, oh shit, I am surprised. Um, <laughs> the two villain dudes, the the con artist and the uncle, so great. And then what happens to them at the end? They're ah. both creepy. Oh yeah, and the whole thing with the vintage pornography and all the like classic. Oh yeah, weird. Like all the scenes of her Everything reading the, the erotica, <laughs> and the mannequin. Oh yeah, <laughs> and the, and like in the first half of the movie, they just describe it as like, oh yeah, reading lessons with my uncle. Oh okay, yeah, but it's and then you get to it's the this back half, huge and you, intense. You find out the dark. It's, it's it's almost like a an Epstein Island kind of deal that they've got going it on. Is. <laughs> Wow. He's got like the creepy basement, and <laughs> and there's like yeah, there yeah, there is a murder all dungeon. over the place. Yeah. yeah, there's a murder dungeon. Yeah, it, it rips. It's really fun. <laughs> yep. And then decision to leave is easily my favorite, but I do think a lot of that is informed by Vertigo, which I was actually shocked. Mm-hmm. I read afterwards that. Uh, Park Chan-wook did not have Vertigo in mind when he made it, which absolutely shocked me because I thought it was a response. Like, it feels like it is a movie that is answering Vertigo in some weird ways. So remember our buddy uh, Martin Beck? Martin Beck from Man on the Roof. Yep, our uh, cuddly old grandpa cop who, who, well, you know, he sort of kind of solved a case. He got shot in the process, but you know. Yeah. solved it and he he was likable he, he was really trying he was, he was a true good cop this yeah. is an acap version where we look at it and it's like <laughs> are we sure though isn't that creepy maybe this guy is just a little bit too into people's shit uh because this is he's maybe he's based on martin beck and he's kind of a creep <laughs> uh yeah i'd say well he's a creep with this one particular woman at least well, so that that's sort of the 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 core of the story is he there's this woman who is suspected of having murdered her husband in a mountain climbing incident. Yeah. Uh and our guy her just alibi is airtight though, of course. Airtight alibi. Uh she was caring for this lady, this this elderly shut-in who could not have been outside of the house. Yeah. But he suspects her and his suspicion is kind of what drives everything in his life. Suspicion is uh, his driving core energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he suspects her, but in the process of watching her and like really wanting it to be her, he becomes like obsessed. Well, it's weird. It's I, I don't know that he necessarily wants it to be her. He's watching her and he becomes obsessed with her. And he falls in love with her, but only as an abstract, as something that he can't have. 
mm-hmm. he she's only viable to him as someone he is watching from afar. The voyeurism is what he's there for. Yeah. Uh, she ends up falling, well, maybe falling in love with him. It's hard to say. She says that she does, but it's only after it's ended. And I feel like up until that point, she, I mean, she is a femme fatale. This is a noir movie. Oh, and she yes. is a femme fatale. Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it, it's like up until that point, I think she's toying with him because spoilers she did kill him she did kill her husband she did she did kill the guy Uh, yes and she's just kind of been playing him like a fiddle all along because he's an open book to her she gets him yeah i I love how like when they rule when the police rule that it's a suicide he goes to her house is like hey you don't have to have this case like ruining your life let me just throw away all this evidence and light it on fire right, for she you. starts destroying all the evidence like okay well th- this is over now you don't need to look at this stuff right it's like uh well i don't know but let me keep that picture okay <laughs> it's like that's that's a picture of me being hot okay yeah, yeah. uh <laughs> yeah i mean it's it is my favorite because it's again it's one that just really plays a lot with and it's oh the visuals of this one the locations the wallpaper Mm, the Mm. wallpapers and of course the beach scene at the end is haunting oh my god the fucking beach scene oh um the ridiculous plot murder plot at the second half very strange that's just like i can't believe this worked this isn't only in movies thing yeah, I mean, it, it, again, um, noir stuff. Like we're we're in noir yeah. territory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the cop, of course, is like married the whole time, and their relationship <laughs> is weird. <laughs> they keep t- like every time they meet up, they talk about how their relationship's doing just fine, and then they just seem extremely awkward. And the only thing they talk about is how their relationship's perfectly okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then like the after the murder case, the wife convinces him to move to this small town, and he because he realizes that she did that the lady did do the murder. Yeah, there's there's like the flip uh, half out it. Yeah, yeah, and then and then like she picks up the phone. It's like congratulations, you got another murder to solve because she thinks that's what's wrong with him is that he hasn't solved any murders. Oh, it's like Convoy Busters. He he, he oh moves to the small coastal <laughs> town and he gets back there and like, but I can still work my case. <laughs> <laughs> well, He's he is up. still kind of working the case. He is. She shows up. And she's involved in another murder. Another dead husband. <laughs> hi my name is so-and-so i'm the next husband yeah i'm the next husband and i like he sh- <laughs> and then he shows up the next day dead in like the most absurd circumstances like oh, he's completely drained of blood he's in an empty pool there's like so many absurd <laughs> elements to it and it's like are you kidding me <laughs> and she's like i guess you have to investigate me again oops <laughs> yeah i it's it's a tease it's like it's just- <laughs> And I'm like, there's a gross part of me that's like, I kind of want these two to get together, but like, no. It's yeah, it's it's sort of sick and twisted because it, it's this weird sort of flirting. Like, looks like Mr. Policeman's gonna have to come investigate me, but <laughs> she kind of wants to destroy him. Though she doesn't really like him per se. She wants to haunt him. She wants to remain in his memory forever, and. 
she doesn't really care well, how she goes about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess she is willing to make the uh, the biggest sacrifice she can to make sure that his life is fucking ruined. Yeah. So, it, <laughs> what what do they call it? Sand beaching. <laughs> Sand beaching. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely my favorite of the three, but I really like Handmaiden a lot. And I, Thirst is just a really good genre film with so much plot. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think whether I like Decision or Handmaiden better depends on what I'm in the mood for, because Decision is more, it's more of a vibes movie. Yeah, it's it's much more low-key. It's definitely just, it's chilly, you're looking at all the scenery, everybody's really disaffected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, they're fucking great. Park Chan Wook. They're amazing. all good. Yeah, they're all really good. And everything I've seen by him, other than the second one, it's really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's bad when I'm putting freaking JSA, which I, we raved about that one. We covered movie. it way back when. Awesome movie. It's on the bottom of my list. Yeah. I, I might put it. Well, I might, no, Thirst. Yeah. Is, I think I'd put it above Thirst. I'd put it thirst. above Thirst. But yeah, uh, it's above yeah, Thirst. It's really great they're all so good <laughs> they're so good um yeah yeah definitely like watch park chan wook films we see them all <laughs> and we haven't given away the endings it's well, yeah, sort we, of except for thirst eh, kind of but anyway uh do you have any last thoughts on any of those four films before we head on into the watch stacks we've got a number of films to speak of Oh, yeah, because I guess you didn't uh, stop watching movies just because I didn't have internet, did you? Nah, nah. I watched. No, no. I watched <laughs> 75 movies when we were off. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, uh, let's let's get into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's head into part two. Part three. Part three. And we're back for part three, the watch stacks, the spooky watch stacks. A uh, bit of a remedial edition. We're doing some catch up. We're not going to catch up all six weeks we missed because <laughs> a lot of that gets outside of Spooky Stacks territory. Although, to be fair, I did watch a lot of horror in September, uh, such as all of the Friday the 13th movies. I might watch all of them again this month. <laughs> well, the phrase I watch a lot of horror seems to apply to you in almost every month. Yeah, I mean, October, I just watch exclusively horror well, is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, in September, uh, yeah, so I watched all of the Fridays then, most of them. I did three through nine, no, three through eight. So those aren't on here, but okay. they might start showing up next week. Uh, and I think one of them is on the spooky stacks as well. Ooh. So we've got. 27 movies that I've watched since the beginning of October, which is what we're using as our cutoff. Everything else we'll do in a catch-up episode at the end of October, or beginning of November. So, we're starting with the first thing I watched, October 1st. Mandy, you know, always my kickoff for the Halloween-thon since seeing it in theater. Uh, The year it came out on September 30th right before halloween season you know i don't think i've seen it since then oh we we both saw it in theater together i was on edibles it was a truly magnificent experience it's uh one of my favorite recent movies just so visually incredible just a really amazing 
uh, aesthetic to it. Oh man, it is so good. Like, I thought it took place on another planet. Yeah, and it's <laughs> maybe funny. it does. I mean, it takes place here, the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> uh, it's a. I mean, it, he's a local director, Panos Cosmatos. He's from Victoria. Oh, cool. Uh, and his stuff is Pacific Northwest based, but like specifically 80s Pacific Northwest with like mm. the satanic panic and stuff. Uh, his earlier one, Beyond the Black Rainbow, is like, is is kind of early Cronenbergy in a lot of ways, has a, has a kind of a similar flavor to that. Cool. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, Mandy, it's just, I love it. I watch it every year. It's so much fun. Best performance of the Cage Renaissance. My my personal opinion. You know, I haven't seen enough of the more recent Cage, but what I have seen, I'd say that's probably true. To be fair, I haven't watched Pig yet, which I hear is also really good. Oh, oh that's yeah. supposed to be so good. Yeah, but I hear it's also bleak. Mm. Next, we've got Night Chills with a K. Oh. Like night. Knight. It's it's a it's a it's an SOV picture, a little late to the game. It's like 2002, but it feels like it was made in the 80s because it's <laughs> a role-playing, like it's a D&D scare film. Oh my God. Like if your children play Dungeons and Dragons, they will start smoking cigarettes. Well, you, it, it, it's cult, devil worship, cult stuff. Right. Um I mean, I think it's tongue-in-cheek about it because, you know, it's well after the satanic panic, and I think it's kind of self-referential in that regard. But, you know, it is still an SOV movie, so it's not the most subtle. <laughs> There's this guy, he's a real nerd, and he is totally obsessed with this one girl who's not interested in him. And he's in this D&D group that has really weird demographics. Okay. It's the DM is one of his high school teachers, but his bullies are also in the D and D group, and the popular girl he has a crush on, and just like it's <laughs> and there's like goth kids, and there's just it doesn't make sense. The the I, no D and D group has this sort of wide demographic group. It, it I, as I wrote in my review, it felt like the ogre from Revenge of the Nerds is in like a D and D group <laughs> with the nerds themselves. <laughs> weird anyway uh he hits on the girl and she rejects him so he commits suicide by driving into a tree and then All right people start turning up dead because he's come back from the grave as his DD knight character to slay them for what he perceived were the wrongs against him Oh, oh, so he... Like an incel He's type. an undead incel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, weird. It's an odd flavor. <laughs> Next is Frankenstein 80. Oh. Like 1980. It was made in 1972, so it was futuristic. <laughs> <laughs> this is like an update of the classic story, but this Frankenstein, or the Dr. Frankenstein, is kind of more rinky dink <laughs> he, he doesn't have a castle he works at a hospital he's not the head at the hospital there's a guy he has to answer to 
and he's the guy who he steals the miracle formula from to make his Frankenstein. And he's just this oh, okay. really angry guy who feels like he deserves better for no real conceivable reason. I should have a Frankenstein. I mean, it's all very modern serial killer thought kind of a version of Frankenstein. And uh, he, he builds his Frankenstein in a secret lab that he has hidden behind a bookcase in the hospital where he works, which is really funny. Uh, sure. You know, there's no floor plans for hospitals. You know, there's just secret rooms that nobody knows about. Somehow he did it. And uh, yep. <laughs> but the, the fun thing is that he uses the hospital to source everything. Like he stole the miracle formula from another doctor and he steals all the parts from the morgue. And, you know, he's, <laughs> he steals all, all of the medical materials and everything. So he's just kind of a, a, a shitty thief doctor. And <laughs> he builds his Frankenstein and his, or his Frankenstein's monster, whatever. And he, you know, the, the monster obviously keeps getting out and murdering people of course this one, yeah this one it's not misunderstood it just gets out and it wants to kill people it's 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 a serial killer version of frankenstein uh well you know that makes it easier to know who to root for yeah it's true uh and it, you know he keeps coming back and the doctor hides him and uh you know eventually everyone's found out <laughs> Obviously. of course yeah <laughs> next we've got death screams Ah, oh my god screaming of death uh early regional slasher post friday the 13th like 82 okay. so it's basic uh there's you know someone who is angry about promiscuous teen sex so he's slashing up teenagers death to all teenagers who fuck yeah it's it's just that uh there's a bunch of people who work at a carnival and those are the targets. They're carnies, people who are oh. like people who work at a summer carnival, right? Sure. You know, uh, like they, there's it's it's like a summer fun fair, like a state fair kind of thing almost. Okay. And yeah, someone shows up with a machete, starts chopping people up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, it's that's the whole plot. I it, it you know it's it's basic. It's one of the original ones. The cool stuff is just seeing the carnival location, just them on the rides and the neon most of the time. That's fun. Not a lot happens until the end. It does have a really gruesome ending. Oh, okay. Uh it's directed by one of the child actors from Ozzy and Harriet, which is weird. Oh. Yeah. Next is Dreamcatcher. Do you ever see Dreamcatcher? I never saw Dreamcatcher. Do you ever read Dreamcatcher? I don't know. Oh, I say the word may. Is this a Stephen King? Stephen King, yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I read the novel when it came out. This is the novel that he wrote when he was zonked on painkillers after getting hit by a van. Okay. And it shows. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Easily Is his it, worst uh, book. Uh, oh. <laughs> so it's kind of a grab bag of things. It's there. Um, there's these four dudes and they all have psychic powers, psychic superpowers, each one different. They're like okay. the X-Men, but they're Stephen King protagonists. So they're all sad guys who live in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> one of them's played by Jason Lee. <laughs> what? <laughs> no way. <laughs> he's he's the funny one. And he just oh, like is just tying into that Stephen King dialogue. <laughs> like his his like goofy expressions. Oh man. Uh, 
fuck me, Freddy. <laughs> oh my God. I, I just imagined his face. Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah. it's a very faithful adaptation of a very bad book where these, <laughs> these four guys, Uh-oh. they've been best friends since childhood. It's like, it's a sequel to stand by me, except their you know, fulminating incident. wasn't finding a dead body. They protected the, this uh, boy who has a, a mental disability from being bullied you know, they save okay, him from sure. bullies and he becomes their best friend and sort of like the the mascot of their group. And they all get superpowers from him. <laughs> from the disabled boy. Yeah, they all get uh, psychic superpowers from the disabled boy who's secretly an alien. Oh, okay. We find out okay. at the end that he's actually an alien when he's Donnie Wahlberg playing a mentally retarded man who's dying of cancer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's i mean it, it I, I, what i'm going to describe sounds like a gross out comedy it feels like it's something that should be directed by the farrelly brothers but it was directed <laughs> by Lawrence kasdan who did like empire strikes back and they play it completely what? dead straight what? <laughs> so aliens crash in this forest and these four guys with their superpowers are out having this boys weekend where they're all getting together to meet up and just like reminisce about old times sure and they go in the woods and after the crash and they they have they find this guy who's really sick and he keeps farting (laughs) (laughs) all right all right i'm still with you i think i'm still with you and they take him back to the cabin and a couple of other guys like they're they've broken up into two groups they, they each find different people who have been infected by aliens uh and they they take the guy back to the cabin and you know they it's like man those farts are terrible what the fuck's going on with this guy and they like have stepped aside and he like locks himself in the bathroom and something horrible's going on in there so it turns out the aliens Unlike the chest, instead of the chest burster, they eat their way out your ass. <laughs> in in the book, they are called shit weasels. Is in fact <laughs> like that is actually what they're called in the book. I don't think they ever use that name in the movie. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, Morgan Freeman shows up doing just like (laughs) he's got big cartoon eyebrows pasted on which are just hilarious they're super thick and wavy the shit weasels he he looks like lopan or like Jaime (laughs) with with his fucking glued on eyebrows and he has i feel like he has a really absurd name let me see if no it's someone else uh his his second in command is tom sizemore who for some reason has jet black dyed hair in this, which looks so crazy on Tom Sizemore. Um, and he he's like an old school alien hunter. Like he's in the government and he is this massive general, but he's been killing aliens for decades. <laughs> so they're, they're on a search and destroy mission to take out all of these shape-shifting aliens. And... You know, they're going to massacre all of the people in the area because, you know, they could be infected because they're shape-shifting. And, uh, all right. w- one of the guys with superpowers gets, well, a, a giant alien shows up. 
He's like eight feet Five. tall. He's like gray, but he's like eight feet tall. Oh, and, okay. And he shows up and his head explodes. <laughs> the alien's head. And the 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 blood mist, I guess, is breathed in by the superpowered guy, and then the alien takes over his body. But he contains he, <sighs> they have this past thing where they have memory palaces as like a physical location that they go to in their own body. And so he goes in there and he hides out in his <laughs> office in his memory palace, and he like sometimes is able to influence things and huh. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh i think it broke my brain it's i mean it, it is a completely insane thing it's it's truly bad like it is baffling because it's so straight-faced like you are seeing the stupidest things uh they don't include it in the in the in the movie but in the book the the alien actually kind of gets taken out by eating raw bacon because <laughs> the the guy it teaches him about food because it's you know it's much longer they have this whole journey where he's with the alien in, inside his head and the alien learns he has to eat and defecate and stuff because he's never had a physical body of a human like this before but it turns out the alien really likes bacon when they have it and so he sends him this like intrusive thought about wanting a bacon sandwich and eventually the alien just gets so angry about it, he goes to a grocery store and just rips open a pack of bacon and eats it raw. And then he gets an intestinal uh, issue that prevents him from completing his mission at the end. That's not how they do it in the movie, but, you know. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, see... You almost lost me with the farting thing, and I can't believe I stayed on for the rest of that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. How many more? (laughs) We got a few. Uh, Oh, my gosh. All right. (laughs) Next is Dr. Caligari. Uh, You familiar with the original Dr. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? I know of it, but I, I haven't seen it. I don't really know what it's about. You ever see that uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers music video, Other Side? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a German expressionist style. It it was based on Caligari. Okay, okay. This is a remake, or not a, I guess it's a sequel, technically, but from the 80s, late 80s, by a guy who is mostly a porn director. Cool. So it's super visual, and it's this... it's weird there's this lady she's like the granddaughter of dr caligari like the original guy from the 20s and uh she's doing she has this clinic where she does sexual gland experiments okay like she's got this guy's wife in there and he's trying to get her out but he's like no no i'm doing these really important experiments and she's trying to deal with uh, the wife's apparent nymphomania. Always wants to have sex. Husband is not into it. Uh, it's not entirely clear who's where the problem is exactly, but uh, <laughs> she has a big. She's the one who's in the institution, and the doctor's keeping them apart. She's also got a cannibal serial killer in there, and oh. she decides to inject the glandular secretions from one another into each other so then 
the wife now is interested in cannibalism and the cannibal just really wants to fuck everyone. Uh, <laughs> um, it's just bizarre. Uh, it, it feels like an 80s music video, but like uh, with, you know, weird zany sex experiments. Have you ever seen Forbidden Zone, the movie by Danny Elfman's brother, Richard Elfman? It sounds familiar. I might have seen it. It feels a lot like that movie. Uh, both movies are just kind of otherworldly uh, art music experiments. Uh, really great, but hard to <laughs> put a finger on exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, next one's not really great. It's called Night of Horror. Oh. More like Night of Borer. <laughs> um, it's kind of not a movie. There's like 30 <laughs> minutes of driving, and then they get to their destination. And then they're camping. <laughs> and then like, we're 40 minutes into a 70-minute movie. And then someone's like, I think I saw something spooky. And there's ghosts. Uh... And they they, and they they come to the, the campfire, but they stay just outside of where you can see them. So you just see sort of a silhouette of something. So even the description on the page doesn't make it sound very good. <laughs> Steve's yeah. buddy Chris can't understand why he's reluctant to play in their band. So one night at Steve's house, he tells Chris a story about traveling to Baltimore. Yeah. Oh, there's more. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I didn't click more. That's the that's the framing story. So we have this framing story with this guy who doesn't want to be in a band, and I don't know why any of that matters at all, other than they <laughs> needed it to be longer than fifteen minutes. <laughs> I mean, it still doesn't look fun. It isn't. Uh, he they, they they the ghosts show up they're around the campfire, and they're Civil War ghosts. They were oh. they were killed uh, during the Civil War and all buried. Uh, because they were bad, they were really evil, right? So the way I told it is how you'd normally tell it, like you're talking. Uh, the way they tell it is they can only say one, maybe two words at a time. <laughs> That's what the entire rest of the movie is when they show up around the campfire. They whisper uh, very slowly, and then occasionally they'll cut to some Civil War reenactment footage that they have handy. <laughs> oh my god, it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Holy fuck. All right. <laughs> so a year later, the director remade it. It's called Curse of the Screaming Dead. It's the next one. <laughs> All right, let, let's take another crack at it, shall we? <laughs> I mean, you couldn't do worse. Uh, the South shall rise again and again <laughs> and again. Uh, uh-oh. This one, I mean, I'm not going to say it's great, but it's better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they they get to, their, like, they, they are driving at the start. They get there in 10 minutes. They don't take 30 minutes. They take 10 minutes. Hey, that's oh, that's an improvement right away. You cut 20 minutes of drive time off the start. Great. Nice, nice. So then they're camping. (laughs) Oh boy. Do we have to see them set up the tent? Sure. (laughs) Around 35, 40 minutes in, stuff starts happening. (laughs) 
<laughs> this time it's a 90 minute movie so you know it's a good half of the movie that stuff happens that's something oh good it's it's nighttime and the the confederate zombies get out of their graves and you see people in makeup as zombies i mean it's already more of a movie <laughs> oh, all right all right I, I mean then it's basically from that point on they they get attacked and they're under siege by zombies uh right there's, I mean, that's that's all. It's it's Night of the Living Dead, except there's a Confederate theme to it, <laughs> and it's really low budget, like hilariously low budget. There, there's driving scenes at the start where they're just clearly just sitting and they're not driving, <laughs> like a bunch of like they could not afford to shoot scenes where they had a camera on a car. There's just no way they could put they had that kind of rig, so they just have them sitting there pretending to be driving. I didn't know that they were supposed to be driving at first. <laughs> I thought they were all just sitting in a van talking because it really doesn't like feel like they're moving. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, it's bad, but it, it was better than the other one. There, There's right. like a solid point in the middle where there's just 10 minutes of zombies chewing on fakey guts. <laughs> nice solid 10 minutes just you know <laughs> a bunch of people blew up there's some people dead and then you have the zombies show up and they're just like oh, 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 oh. <laughs> nothing but there, there's one really great part where because <laughs> the effects are so bad one of the zombies is supposed to like reach out and grab some of the guts and it reaches down and it like the entire <laughs> wound applique just pulls off and just, <laughs> just, nothing left obviously just like some, a red mark on the on the <laughs> on the shirt and the zombies like like they pause for a moment and they just still just like bring it up to the mouth and start chewing it on and walk away it's like ah, that's what's going on in the scene whatever <laughs> uh. <sighs> next we've got a haunted turkish bathhouse this looks familiar this has been on the stacks before hasn't it it has i've watched it before i i got it a, a few months back maybe like six months ago uh it's a real nasty pink film uh are you uh, familiar with the concept of the pink film no i was just about to ask you so uh, the pink film it's like the roman pornos that we talked about we were talking about um uh the first girl gang one Oh, um, oh God! Uh, Stray Cat Rock. Stray Cat Rock. The the Stray Cat Rock. I did a bunch of stuff like these. Uh, the pink films were sort of, they're, sort of borderline softcore pornography, but they're like it, it, it's sort of the Japanese version of like sexploitation. It, it was their sexploitation wave. Okay. And so this is sort of like their roughies. And this one's real rough. Uh, there's, mm. it's, it starts with the uh, outlawing of prostitution. So all the geishas, they're, they're closing down the brothel because you know, they, they're not allowed to do it anymore. But wink, wink, we're going to open a Roman baths. And uh, oh. you, you can all hurt a Turkish bath. And each of them can get a room and uh, you know, continue to do basically the same stuff. Of course, yeah. There's one woman who's like, I don't want to do it. I, I want to get out of the business. I'm, I've never wanted to do this. It's just a, for the need, for the money that I had to. Now I'm ready to get out. I've got this guy. We're going to get married. It's going to be perfect. And it turns out the guy ain't shit. In of fact, course. it turns out the guy actually works for the brothel and was kind of her pimp all along and she had no idea. Oh. 
doesn't what go great jerk. for her. Yeah, really doesn't go great. They uh, beat her to death. Uh, it's it's very brutal scene where just a, a whole bunch of people beat her up while she's naked. And I think they crucify her. Oh. And they wall her up in uh, like a, you know, they, they brick her up in a wall. And she obviously is resurrected as an avenging cat spirit. And she haunts the fuck out of the brothel. Nice. As a cat. <laughs> Yeah, as a cat monster, like first as a cat, and then later she is like a cat woman. Okay. Yeah. All right, that sounds fun. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's fucking wild. Uh, Next is Exorcist The Beginning. This is one of two different prequels that were made of The Exorcist in 2004. (laughs) Now... I've only seen Exorcist once, and it was a bit ago, but I don't feel like it needs a prequel. It doesn't. Uh, It's better off without one. You want the mystery. Mm. I I feel like prequels are generally a bad idea. There's usually not a good idea to do a prequel. Uh, You especially don't want to put Rennie Harlan in charge of an Exorcist prequel. I don't know if you're familiar with Rennie Harlan. He's like, he's a European director who did mostly franchise sequels oh, okay um he did die hard 2 the oh. bad one <laughs> <laughs> he did deep blue sea he did cliffhanger he did nightmare on elm street i want to say five but okay. I'm not a fan. Uh, mm. just, I'm really not a fan of him as a director. I find his films, he tends to have sort of nonsensical films. Like, they're, it's a lot of stuff happening visually. It's like proto-Michael Bay. But there's not... It's just a bad handling of anything but the visuals. Mm, okay. And you don't want to give the exorcist to someone who doesn't know how to handle character and nuance and mood and atmosphere. And in this case, Catholic dogma and the Holocaust. Oh, that's key to it. Cause this was a project by uh, Paul Schrader who, you know, he's, he's the guy who wrote taxi driver and mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff. He, he's like a, a major <laughs> God, he started this project and it was this very deep Catholic guilt thing. And there's, you know, Father Marin, the priest. It's him uncovering Pazuzu for the first time in, I think, Egypt. Uh, and, you know, he has all this guilt from being a priest during the Holocaust in Germany. And then, uh, you know, the things were just going out of control. So the studio fired him and they got Rennie Harlan in. <laughs> Uh, oh boy. And yeah, I mean, there at the the climax, he reshot the entire movie basically. And for some reason, ultimately, they ended up getting Paul Schrader back, and he finished his version. Now there's two that came out at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> <sighs> but like by the end of the like the climax of the movie, there's this other lady who he has a crush on. Because he's sort of a lapsed priest at this point because of all his guilt. And Pazuzu inhabits her so she looks exactly like Regan from The Exorcist. So it can be exorcisty. And then she has like, 
they have a battle sequence that's an exorcism where they're in a cave and he's got this little kid who was previously possessed who he's teaching how to read and do the thing while he's like to be his second (laughs) in the exorcism while she's flying around and teleporting and screaming and doing cgi shit (laughs) <laughs> what oh it sucks it sucks it's so bad <laughs> man like I, I mean it just such a baffling thing to be part of the exorcist series because it has like tonally nothing to do with it next we have a better movie from hell it came <laughs> 1957 he's a tree <laughs> what okay (laughs) so it's one of my favorite really goofy 50s monsters he's uh he's tabanga he's an evil walking tree (laughs) (laughs) he's just he's got a really ugly face and he looks really angry he's very obviously like when they find the tree that's tabanga they're like what the fuck's that let's bring (laughs) it into the laboratory and take a look at it Uh, it's it's not (laughs) subtle because uh, like so it's it's in the bikini atoll there are uh doctors who are helping out pacific islanders who have all these radiation burns because of you know all, all those tests just some stuff that happens to happen right nobody's fault and you'd think that that would tie into the tabanga but apparently it's just a tribal tradition that he's this evil walking tree who you know it regularly comes back and has to deal with them Oh, and the radiation is just this other thing. It's just why the doctors are there, so we can have white people. (laughs) Okay. So so those are kind of the main characters because they ultimately get in the middle of the Tabanga business, so it makes it worse, and now it's on the rampage instead of them just, like, you know, the villagers dealing with it before it got out of hand, I guess. Right, right. (laughs) Tabanga can't do a whole lot. I mean, it's heavy. (laughs) It's a tree. So there's a part where it just, like, runs into someone and crushes them against another tree that's pretty effective but mostly it just picks people up and laboriously waddles over to quicksand and throws them in because it can't do a whole lot else (laughs) so if tabunga falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it does it make a sound i don't think tabunga makes sounds come to think of it i feel like he doesn't oh okay yeah uh, next, we've got Tentacoli, or Tentacles. Uh, it's Jaws knockoff. Jaws, but octop- octopus. Octopus, yeah. No. yeah. Uh, this one is Toxic Waste. Octopus has been feeding on Toxic Waste to get really big. Uh, and I think it's just off the coast of California. Uh, and, you know, in the opening scene, it eats a baby. <laughs> so it's like, okay, we're, we're establishing this is a movie that goes kind of hard. Uh, this is a, you know, a mother with her baby by the seaside, and she's talking to a friend in a car. And I, I think I sent you the clip. There's like a school bus that passes in between, and she looks back, and the baby is just gone, and the carriage is sideways next to the <laughs> railing. Like, oh, uh, and yeah, it, it's just eating people, <laughs> but I kind of love it. You know, it's 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 obviously a Jaws knockoff. Uh, it's it's just really heightened it's ridiculous when like instead of the the beach scene where you know brody's watching with fear and it shows up and attacks you know the the busy beach 
they yeah. have a whole sailing regatta and it sinks everyone <laughs> <laughs> all right takes them all out uh and the main guy who's hunting it is a vietnam vet who has a psychic connection with a pod of orcas and he's going to try and get them to kill the kill the octopus for him also orcas has a... bite though they're kind of jerks that's what they do they're they're killer whales <laughs> Uh, next, this is on the same disc. It's a double feature. Uh, Reptilicus, which is the only Dutch kaiju movie. Oh, a Dutch kaiju. All right. So it's this copper mining uh, organization. They're, they're drilling down and they accidentally take a core sample of this frozen, ki- frozen kaiju tail. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they're like drilling through some permafrost and they hit something weird and they pull it up and it's all fleshy and it's like ew it's flesh what the hell and so they pull it out and there's tail it's just you know leftover tail giant kaiju lizard tail I'm like oh fuck weird and it's really well preserved which is strange because you know it has to be millions of years old because they figured you know right. dinosaur tail weird right so, of course you know they bring it into town they got it frozen in a freezer and then hijinks comedy there's this comedical norwegian named peterson uh and tail gets unfrozen and then it regrows the whole monster <laughs> oh it's one of those it's one like of a those. starfish yeah and it's a puppet <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's a puppet kaiju so it's you know it's someone waving their arms around and got like <laughs> strings you can see i i really oh, I like it. the reptilicus puppet yeah <laughs> Next, we've got The Scary of 61st. um, So there's these two ladies, and they move into this pretty swanky apartment in Manhattan. Oh, but it harbors a dark secret. There's something about it that seems off. It turns out it was owned by Jeffrey Epstein, and it's haunted by him and his sexual energy. Are you are you like serious? Yes, that is that is literally the plot of the movie. They act, they buy one of Jeffrey Epstein's sex apartments, and there's just an evil sex energy in the place, and they get really weirded out. And one of them starts investigating it, and the other one regresses into an abused eight year old and starts like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, there's this weird lady who shows up who's deep into Epstein. Uh, conspiracy theory and she's just like wanting to check out the place and so the she gets the other person interested in investigating it and the two of them just become totally obsessed and they totally detach from the other roommate and while she's going crazy and becoming I don't know a cartoon Lolita uh, (laughs) and and it's them like investigating and like looking into all these conspiracy theories and uh, you know Pizzagate and all of that shit it's just them going down an internet rabbit hole and then looking around town and, and the most hilarious part in the movie they're out about Manhattan and they see Ghislaine Maxwell oh, <laughs> just, fuck. like it's you know someone dressed with just a really stupid wig to look like Ghislaine Maxwell and it cuts yeah. back and she cries a single tear like not Ghislaine Maxwell the girl who's the main character <laughs> <laughs> A single tear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> it's 
so bad. Wow. Oh. My my argument oh. is that it should have been a movie that they shot on camcorder. Like this is a movie shot on film. Uh, it's like a real movie, and it should have been shot on camcorder. You know, if this had been a handheld VHS movie, I would have laughed at it more. <laughs> <laughs> This sounds so so dumb. And it's bad. Dumb. It's incredibly dumb. I think uh, one of the top reviews on Letterboxd is something like uh, "Eyes Wide Shut for Girls with Brain Damage." <laughs> sounds about right. It's definitely an Eyes Wide Shut <laughs> riff, but Epstein and internet brain rot. Oh my god, I'm looking at the reviews for this movie and oh it's fucking bad. <laughs> uh <laughs> next is Panic Room, another Manhattan horror film. Well, horror, home invasion. You see Panic Room? Uh I haven't seen Panic Room, but I remember like the trailers and stuff when it came out. Yeah, least seen of Fincher's films, I suppose. I think it's his biggest flop. Okay. Uh, so it's the movie he made after the game, uh, in between the game and uh, Zodiac, I believe. All right. Yeah. Uh, so Jodie Foster and Kristen Stewart are mother and daughter. Okay. So Kristen Stewart, well before Twilight. Right, right. Uh, and they've just bought this new brownstone apartment in Manhattan. And they're spending their first night there and they find the one of one of the features is it has a panic room, obviously. All right. And they're spending their first night there and these guys break in. They want something. So, you know, Jody and Kristen get into the panic room. But it turns out what the guys want is in the panic room. Oh no. So, you know, the whole suspense picture, you know, they're all just in this house. The most interesting thing is just like it is fincher doing hitchcock it is fincher completely doing his own hitchcock movie it's a locked room thing and the camera is just gliding through walls between doors uh, like <laughs> going through windows there's a part where it like goes through the handle of a coffee mug while it's going straight from <laughs> one end of the house to the other lots of cool camera shit it's very very stylish for that Nice, nice. Uh, it's also a really cool opening credits where the credits seem to be physically in the world. They're just like these huge signs that loom and cast a shadow over things. And just like as if they're billboards in New York. Okay, that's cool. I like a good nifty. It's nifty. I mean, like, you know, it's it, it's a good genre film, but it doesn't really have the heft of any of the other Fincher movies. Okay. Next, we've got Night Ripper. Ooh. It's another <laughs> SOV film. Uh, it stars the Soup Nazi. Nice. <laughs> when he was young, because it's from like the 80s. So it's uh, Larry Thomas, the, the Soup Nazi. Same mustache, totally unmistakable. It's like, that's the fucking Soup Nazi. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and no he's, ripping for you. Yeah, he's the red herring. He's the guy who is really obviously the red herring because he's just a big fan of the of the ripper and he's like <laughs> totally obsessed with it and he finds it really fascinating and he talks about it in a really intense way all the time but it's just he's really interested in the case okay <laughs> uh, but he's a photographer and there's all these models getting slashed 
and uh it's pretty obvious who's doing it right from the beginning uh honestly i, I think it's supposed to be a big shock twist but like <laughs> the first moment you meet the character is like this is going to be the killer larry thomas is a red herring and <laughs> this person's the killer but it's you know it's it's very basic uh you know it's mid 80s it's shot on video but it uses the lo-fi quality of the vhs really well in kind of an almost stylish way just it's shot at night a lot of just driving around uh shooting vhs from cars cruising down the strip with just cheap midi synth going and i don't know the atmosphere wise it works it's pretty good all right and next we've got Purana Mandir, which is next in the Bollywood Horror Box. Ooh, I haven't drunk from that well in a while. This one's the first one that they made. Uh, it's So it's it's sort of them building the template. So it's a little bit stiff in places, especially getting going at the start. It's like, yeah, I've seen this before, and this definitely feels like we're kind of belaboring the point in places and we're kind of getting there. But once it gets going, it's pretty good does all the same stuff that the others do uh okay <laughs> you got a big old abandoned temple that's really spooky and that's what it is Pranamandir, the haunted temple yeah obviously there's a giant beast man who is just raging through the forest and eating people there's the comedic character who has a comedic plot that has nothing to do with anything else <laughs> of course gotta romance. have one of those there's there's a romance uh there's the the girl and the the guy wants to marry the girl and the father says no you can't and he won't say why but it turns out it's not because of who the guy is but because there's a curse on the girl and her family with this beast man and you know <laughs> right the music rocks obviously yeah as it tends to do yeah I mean, I, there's very little that stands out about this one in comparison to the other ones it, you know it's just it's a solid entry really Definitely right. suffers from being seen later than them because it's like I've seen this all done a little bit better. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Next is the Witch's Mountain. Uh, it's kind of a cool one. There's this guy, he's a photographer, and he picks up this lady hitchhiking. Although in the opening scene, we saw this really weird bit where there's this little girl who has killed this lady's cat because Ooh. she said the cat was upsetting her pet, which turns out to be a big python. Oh. And so the lady's following this little girl around as she's monologuing about why she killed the cat and how it's a really good thing that she did it. And then she lights the little girl on fire and that's when the credits start. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, the little girl's saying something about how they have to take her to this place and people are upset with you and we're going to have to take you back to the place. And it's clearly where they end up being in the movie is this witch's mountain. So the photographer picks her up on the road and they go to this village that seems pretty much deserted. And he goes to, like, take some photos of this cool deserted village. And there's just nothing there. And then at the end, he tries to get a few because he sees these weird witches. He's like, what the fuck? Where did they come from? But none of those pictures come back, except all of the photographs that he took earlier have witches in them. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're all just like there in the, the photographs where no one was, where like we saw him taking the pictures and they're all just like looking at the camera. 
so it's eerie it's it's pretty good in building the atmosphere with that and uh you know it turns out obviously there are witches and uh they they have a history with this lady and you know of course <laughs> yeah. yeah gothic stuff uh next is seven women for satan Hmm. Uh, also known as i think the evil weekends of count zeroff so <laughs> <laughs> count zeroff he is like you know most dangerous game right uh i actually don't okay well the, you know, the, the basic idea of most dangerous game no no so actually so the classic story um this count who has his own secret island where he will take people and then he hunts man the most dangerous game oh yeah. okay no i have heard this i didn't yeah, know yeah. that that's what this was yeah yeah i think that guy's count zeroff and this would be the descendant of count zeroff and he's just like okay. a banking ceo except on the weekend he still does the old school hunting like naked ladies on horseback shit <laughs> uh his his manservant is played by Howard Vernon, who is like the main guy who's in all the Jess Franco movies as various. You know, he, he is uh, Dr. Orloff, and he just like frequently played mad scientists and stuff. He's just a consistently evil looking guy. So it's like, I mean, his manservant is evil, too. And the, the manservant turns out to be like much more running things than the CEO. <laughs> cool. So he's living in like the ancient dungeon and still has a really well-kept tortured dungeon in the castle. And uh, anytime there's any sort of romance in his life, he thinks that she's his lost love Anne, and he goes completely insane and then he kills her. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's going to make it hard uh, for hard to plan a marriage around it. And like, I don't get how his, mind works it just seems like he blanks out stuff all the time because there's like this part where a couple tourists show up and he cheerfully shows them the torture dungeon everything and he's like a friendly <laughs> host and then he forgets that he's left them in there and they get tortured to death <laughs> <laughs> they just get like he puts them in a device and turns it on and then he just like forgets uh <laughs> next we've got blood thirst save uh filipino uh an american production in the philippines okay it's in black and white feels very noir but it's pretty lo-fi uh there's it's it's this dude he is a friend of the chief of police in manila he's an american detective and he's like i need you to come and help me out with this weird serial killer case okay and you know they they start following the clues and there's this guy who's got a big melty face and he's actually killing the people and draining their blood to give it to this mad scientist vampire lady I want to say bloodthirst (laughs) (laughs) this is uh, in a set with the thirsty dead same disc Uh, another manila shot American production this one uh, there's this cult this bunch of cultists in red robes are just grabbing women off the streets of manila and pulling them into the jungle and there's just this blood cult in in the jungle okay misled by a white guy some some american dude he looks like he's from star trek <laughs> you know, like when they encounter a god being 
Oh, yeah. He dresses like one of those. Same hairstyle, too. <laughs> uh, and he's developed, or the cult has developed this thing where they've found these magical leaves that will heal wounds. And if you mix blood and the magical leaves, you can live eternally. But the thing is, most people have to be blood slaves, and you can just have a couple people at the top who get to, you know, drink the blood and and be the aristocrats of the blood cult. It was called Skull. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there, it's it follows this group of women who get abducted, who are like they're they're not related to each other, but they're sort of like an intake group, and one of them turns out to be a chosen one, and she has to make moral decisions about whether she's going to drink the blood and become an aristocrat. That's weird. Hmm. All right. Now, do I have to? Now, do these come before or after Thirst in the Thirst trilogy? I mean, you gotta probably see. Uh, hmm. I don't know what order they'd have to go in. I mean, obviously, Thirst is a much <laughs> newer film, and they're all about vampires in Asia. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> uh, these are both really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> very, very cheap exploitation films uh made uh in the philippines because it's cheap to make them there mm. uh next up friday the 13th which is not on the list because you know, we've covered it obviously yes, we have. But i had yep. to rewatch it obviously of course was this far into october and i haven't watched a friday the 13th film it's crazy gotta do it so next i watch shri gala which is also friday the 13th <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this not long ago. Uh, people on an island are brutally murdered one by one by a mysterious stranger in this Indonesian Friday the 13th ripoff. It is a Friday the 13th ripoff. And, you know, at first you <laughs> wouldn't know it. Like, it, you, you get these people at a lake. And so there's the lake locale. And so there's that. But mm-hmm. some of them are treasure hunters. There's these guys, okay. they're trying to find treasure that they think is under the lake. It's supposedly treasure. I don't know. It's going to be Jason, though. <laughs> well, they, they pull up a coffin, and there's just this dude covered in moss. Oh, fuck. And they're like, oh, shit. And they just put it back in the lake. And like, oh, man, they... sometimes there I, there's a part where someone is going through the forest, and there's a bunch of mossy dudes. Okay. But I don't know how that relates to anything. i don't know what the mossy dude's deal was why is the killer like somebody's mom still somebody's wife (laughs) okay (laughs) so like yeah you've got some vacationers show up you know a bunch of horny 20 somethings instead of camp counselors just people on vacation sure and they meet up with the treasure hunters and you know they have hangout stuff and then at some point, this weird masked figure shows up, and they have a speedboat fight. Ooh. Just, that sounds fun. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. They're they're dueling speedboats. They're just, like, racing speedboats at each other for a while. For just, like, a long while. Uh, I, and I don't know why. <laughs> and then, like, you're, like, an hour into this movie. Maybe 45 minutes. And then all of a sudden, it turns into the end of Friday the 13th. <laughs> like some people have been killed off and you're down to just the right number of people and it's exactly <laughs> the point at which everybody's about to split up and go find dead bodies you know it's it's that point and then 
I swear to God, it is a scene for scene remake from that point forward. <laughs> Just every scene is that except slightly retrofitted to this plot. So instead of being the mom looking for revenge, she's the wife of the guy whose treasure it was and she wants the treasure. So she's killing off the treasure hunters so they can't have it. Okay. So, That's sensible. Yeah. Uh, it's it's Scooby-Doo plus Friday the 13th. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, weird. Weird. Next is Final Destination 3, which I'd say is the best of the three so far. Okay. Uh, this is the one that starts on a roller coaster. Oh. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these, any of the sequels or whatever. I've only seen the first one. Okay. So I think it was in 3D because it's three and it's 3D. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's great. Uh, it's really fun. Uh, I feel like it finally corrected the problem of the first two where you're trying to make us care about a dozen characters who we know <laughs> by the nature of the plot are going to be killed in a specific order that we already know. So it's like, why do we care? <laughs> I don't need to give a shit about these people. Make them awful caricatures that i want to see die i that's i I don't care the point is to see them get killed in (laughs) hilariously gruesome and absurd ways Uh, so that's what they do it's like yeah let's just have fun with it we'll have one character we care about and then everyone else can suck (laughs) yeah no you, you don't want more than one it's the damnedest thing like i see people complaining online in reviews about it like oh you know shout out to mary elizabeth winstead for carrying this entire film and like yeah, she's the only character you care about because why would you want to care about any of the other ones? I, I, I This isn't a complaint. It's a good thing about the movie. Uh, but she is great. She's really good in it. She's the final girl, obviously. Uh, you got a really wild opening with a, a roller coaster accident, which is pretty fucking crazy. Uh, the various deaths are all really wild. They enter this... They, they introduce a new thing where the girl who's the final girl was taking pictures for the yearbook because it's like a high school grad event. Okay. Yeah. And so each of the survivors, she has a picture, has some pictures of them and each of them has a hint to how they'll die, but they keep interpreting what it's going to be wrong. And then they Mm. find, look at the other phone and like, fuck, it was that instead. God damn it. Okay. That I'm, I'm into that. I like that. It's pretty good. Uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun. Cool. Next one, I didn't have a lot of fun. It's Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. <laughs> Which, as we, if I recall, is not the final one, right? No, there's a few more. Uh, there's Jason X after and Freddy versus Jason, of course, because that's the, the teaser at the end of this is Freddy's claw comes out and pulls Jason's mask under. I remember seeing like like a card like a 3d cardboard cutout of the poster like the mask with oh the yeah worm coming out it was, of it. it was big yeah in like the theaters and movie stores and all over the place i remember this thing i never saw the movie but i remember that cutout yeah i mean you saw as much as you needed to <laughs> that's not fair first eight minutes are awesome okay <laughs> this is the one where jason gets blown up at the start 
Oh, I, I, yeah, I saw the links. Like the FBI or like the SWAT team is doing like their tactical, yeah, Jason killing maneuvers. They're doing a bunch of tactical roles because so the opening of the movie, you have this this FBI agent. She, you don't know she's an FBI agent, but she's dressed exactly like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. They're obviously trying to make her look like her. She's got like oh, a baseball too. cap and stuff. She, you know, the Silence of the Lambs was like two years before. Right, right. You know, to to lure, to be the innocent girl to lure out the Jason. Right. So you see her driving up to camp. You see her past the Crystal Lake sign. She sets up camp. You know, some of the stuff doesn't work. You see like potential Jason issues and, you know, she <laughs> she takes off her hat and uh, like coat and suddenly she's a boo 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 babe. <laughs> of course. So of she can she like is. get in the shower and get naked and attract Jason. Yeah. <laughs> and Jason shows up and chases her through the forest. And instead of like the classic scene where she's like stumbling and troubling and, you know, screaming for help, she's like leaping over things and doing like, you know, fireman rolls and stuff. She's like totally on, on point. He chases her to a clearing and floodlights pop up and they just fucking unload hundreds of rounds into him and then they hit him with a mortar and he fucking explodes his head goes spiraling through the air <laughs> okay so now that i've heard all that do i need to see the movie <laughs> no you can shut it off at that point that's that's all you need to say all right uh all right then that sounds awesome yeah, though i'm not gonna oh, lie i want to see you that you gotta see the opening scene and then after that butt worms uh as i mentioned earlier uh, Jason turns out to be a worm that crawls up butts to control minds. He's a shit weasel. Kind of that. It's it's not unlike that. Uh, except for some reason, it's also exclusively tied to the Voorhees bloodline, which makes no sense. And I have no what? idea how that's supposed to make sense with anything Why earlier. Would... I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. It's dumb. It's just dumb. <laughs> uh, next, I watch Blood Rage. Which was of uh, which is not on the list because we've watched it, we've covered it. Yeah, we covered it. Fucking awesome! So I good. I want to see it again this year. Oh yeah, we might watch that this weekend. That's such a good movie. I I'm gonna recommend it, yeah. but we'll we'll see where it goes. Yeah, uh, so good. One of my favorite horror scores. Uh, I love all of his cranberry sauce shit. It's so funny. <laughs> uh, just such a fun, charismatic slasher. Who you still aren't cheering for? No, he's just really fun to watch. You're you're having a good time watching him. It's like I do want to see this guy get taken out. He's really evil. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was, you know, that was Thanksgiving because Blood Rage is a Thanksgiving mm-hmm. movie, and with Jason, Jason goes to hell. He had the turkey, so I figured <laughs> I need a wee bit of mashed potatoes. We got an Irish horror movie, Rawhead Rats, oh. as our last pick. Uh, it's a Clive Barker film. It's, uh, uh, I think I, he didn't direct it. It's based on one of his stories. I think he hates it. Oh. But it feels really Clive Barkery, quite honestly. I, I I see the connection to his other work. Uh, although this does have a big silly rubber suit monster who's got kind of like a horse face and he just chomps people. <laughs> <laughs> so you got this farmer who's in his field and there's just an obelisk with some threatening runes on it. And you don't mess with that kind of thing, right? No, of course not. You stay away. He's trying to pull it out with a tractor. 
it's just not working out. The, the other guys who are helping them, like, man, this thing isn't budging. They're like, we're going to go. We're, we're going to go break for lunch and we'll see you later. And he messes with it a little bit more. He wakens Rawhead Rex. <laughs> so Rawhead Rex is like a pagan god, like a, a pre-Christian god who's just buried in a field. And now that he's out, he's really angry and he just runs screaming into people and chomps them. That's his whole deal. He just flies like it's him just running full tilt at someone and then just every time rips heads off. He's got flashing red eyes like like a, a like a Halloween ornament. Uh, yeah, and he just you know, rampages through Ireland for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah you definitely don't want to touch uh runic carved slabs in ireland yeah no exactly this is what i'm saying <laughs> like that's even that's even worse than just doing it normally yeah not a smart move uh so yeah those are our 25 ish picks uh what Oof. do you figure for next week uh well you know what? Um, I do have a bit of spare time. I'm on a holiday this week, so I have a bit of spare time. You easily do a couple of these. I'm thinking that. I'm thinking that. And I'm thinking it's high time we finally covered Mandy. All right. Since this will be the third Halloween, and I think you've watched it at the beginning of every Halloween since it's been out, you were saying? Yeah. I think last year I watched it at the end instead of at the start, but uh i've watched it every year for sure hmm, okay and i kind of want to see final destination three final destination three it is a lot of fun uh yeah i was surprised by it 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 uh it checks all the boxes i i was kind of i'm like my misgivings with two were definitely just that it spends all this time trying to make these characters have pathos and we're supposed to worry about their survivor's guilt and shit. And it's like, this is a 90 minute movie where someone gets a uh, fucking ton, like a pane of glass fall on and squish them flat, like a cartoon <laughs> character into a pancake. I don't need to care about that character. That's silly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. So yeah, we can do a double feature for part two next week. All right, so Mandy and Final Destination 3. So going over to the spooky stacks, we've got quite a lot of stuff on here. Uh, what do you figure for our main feature? Oh, well, um, it had always been the plan for me that I was going to choose a Friday the 13th movie on, on the October where uh, Friday the 13th would happen, but then it just ended up working out that way anyways yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh westworld's on here that's the original i take it it is indeed okay oh psycho oh halloween ends is that the, that's the one we haven't no i've seen halloween kills right halloween ends is the most recent one it's the conclusion to the david gordon green trilogy and one that i think is underappreciated hmm i remember ninja zombie <laughs> ninja zombie is fun yeah i've got a pretty interesting collection here i've uh completely overhauled the list from last year so everything's been moved around quite a bit 
cool, cool. Yeah, no, this is a lot of new stuff. So Friday the 13th Part 3 is, of course, on here. Okay. We could do, like, if we've been off. We could do two double bills. We could do three and four for Part 1. And oh yeah jason corner i i'm willing to do, like i could totally do three and four easy like they are like those like two three and four all run into each other they they take place over like two weeks <laughs> so yeah okay do those together fourth one is the best and the third one is very silly <laughs> let's let's do it all right hell yeah so we're doing four movies next week to make up for having missed all of September, sadly, not our intention. Yeah. <laughs> and we missed a week of October, so we'll make up for it. We're doing well, an extra Alien one. Alien is on here. Why? And why do I feel like we covered Alien? I know we didn't. We watched Alien together as a group with Tony, like a month before we started this podcast or something That's like that. That's what it was. Uh, That'll be what it was. Yeah. Okay. So next week. Friday the 13th, part 3D. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Final Destination 3 and Mandy. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, really dive into roll. October. Get Hell spooky yeah. with it. Hell yeah. All right, well, uh, man, I haven't done this in so long. I don't remember how to sign off anymore. Not that we were we doing don't... like a great job with it before. <laughs> We, we don't have a good thing. We each just say a thing from a movie that we watched. I usually try uh, to put a couple things together, but a lot of the time I just forget about it. And, you know, obviously this week, it's been seven weeks since we did one. Uh, well, to my listeners, the moment I tell you that I love you, my love for you ends. <laughs> Ouch. Ice cold. No, that's not actually not. No, that's not true. I love my listeners. Uh, that is uh it's a quote from decision decision leave yeah. Yeah. yeah uh so yeah next week we'll be covering four spooky films uh looking forward to that uh hope to see you all soon and get down with your spooky selves uh looking forward to a rockin halloween this year uh any, any last thoughts are we gonna close up spooky <laughs> the spooky crisp all right uh <laughs> good start to the the hallows eve and we'll see you folks next week <laughs>